0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. February 28th, 2018. Less than 10 days from this recording will mark the 25th anniversary of the ATF rating of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, setting off a 51-day armed standoff between federal agents and militant Christian fanatics. Over 80 people would die, most in the final day of the siege, when a fire would burn the compound to the ground, killing nearly all of the men, women, and children still inside. This siege was televised live across America day after day for almost two months. Tanks versus citizens, armed agents versus armed zealots, Religious freedom versus gun laws and the age of consent. And behind all this madness, one David Koresh, a self-proclaimed prophet and leader of a small rural Texas religious sect, a seventh-day Adventist offshoot, a man who transitioned from a rural Texas high school dropout to a man who convinced lawyers and college professors that he was a prophet of God and that God had also ordained that David should not only sleep with these men's wives— that he should also get their wives pregnant and not allow their husbands to ever sleep with them or any other woman ever again. We get weird, real weird today as we go full cult and not the good cult of the curious kind today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, mother suckers. Heidi Ho, Space Lizards. I'm Dan Cummins, aka Prophet of Nimrod, aka Brother of Bojangles, the Master Sucker, the Puppet Master of Chicotillo, and this is Time Suck. Welcome to your weekly taste of the cult of the curious, where learning something new is actually fun, where history meets humor, where insanity collides with profanity. Recording from the Suck Lair in Scenic Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, with Reverend Dr. Joshua Krell Esquire, the seventh. For all Space Lizard app and web updates, please just check your Patreon emails and the Patreon posts. More improvements coming each week. Very excited for this week's improvements. The Bit Elixir guys working so hard to make the Secret Suck experience a smooth one. And if you can't figure something out, email them. They are awesome. app at BitElixir.co. Huge thanks to Jimmy Wisman and James Petrogallo from Crime and Sports and Small Town Murder for joining up with me in Detroit, Ferndale, technically, for a night of stand-up and podcasting. Two sold-out shows. Hail Nimrod! Thanks so much to all the awesome TimeSuckers and Space Lizards who made it out. I'm planning on posting that show on Patreon for my live uh, Space Lizards soon. Little extra, extra suck for you guys. Uh, yeah, that was so much fun. And uh, some sadness, obviously, this last week. My heart goes out to anyone affected by yet another school shooting this past week, this time in Florida. You know, 17 people gunned down this past Wednesday at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. More senseless violence. Some of you wrote in saying that it's time I do a suck in America's relationship with firearms, and I agree. Haven't been putting that off out of fear of losing listeners or getting shit over it. I just need extra time to do it right. Haven't had that the past month or so. Uh, got to do that particular topic justice, and it's a complicated one. Man, gun control and immigration are the two hot topic social issues. I will suck soon. Just got to get my mind properly around them. Can't rush that. I've, you know, I made that mistake in the past with some episodes. Or I jumped in a little too quick, and I wish I could have kind of done them over. Uh, got the first elite space lizard gathering this weekend in Coeur here at the Suck Dungeon. I'll be posting pics on Instagram. I'm sure doing some Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, at TimeSuck Podcast. Pumped to get the Suck Dungeon looking nice this week for the weekend. Uh, also feel terrible for one of the attendees. Space lizard Brian Campbell just lost his home and everything, uh, in it pretty much due to some recent Ohio river flooding. He's launched a GoFundMe campaign to get back on his feet and I just donated and if you want to help a fellow Time Sucker, the link is going to be in today's episode description. Stay strong, Brian. Uh, I know some Time Suckers are going to help you out. Uh, we love you, man. Next week, and we got some tour dates. Minneapolis, March 2nd and 3rd. Sisyphus Brewing. Ticks still available for the stand-up live podcast. Been sold out. Brea, California. Uh, Cleveland, Ohio coming up in March. Brea Improv, March 8th, 11th. 8th through the 11th, excuse me, hilarities in Cleveland, 22nd through 24th. And Salt Lake City coming up in April. I totally spaced on Salt Lake City on my calendar. Jeez. More tour dates, dancummins.tv, big southern tour in April. Time now for Time Sucks 75, Guns and God, the Waco siege of David Koresh's Branch Davidian compound. So who were the Branch Davidians we're going to be talking about today? Well, the Branch Davidians were... Well, and, and since I guess there there are still members around today, technically still are uh, a sect as opposed to a cult. A uh, sect being an offshoot of an, of an established religion, you know, uh, as opposed to a true cult, which rejects existing uh, dogma, rejects uh, existing religions, kind of just does its own thing. Like Jim Jones, you know, if you'll recall, rejected the teachings of the Bible in totality at the end and just got his people to uh, to agree with him about that and became this kind of strange socialist experiments. Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate, he, he also started with the Bible, moved away uh, until he was, you know, uh, not interpreting it even in its loosest form. He reimagined uh, some scripture into this UFO intergalactic kind of way and added his own, you know, teachings. The Branch Davidians uh, weren't and aren't quite that extreme in their theology. The Branch Davidians came out of the Davidians, which came out of the Seventh-day Adventists, Adventists, excuse me, which came out of uh, American Protestant Christianity in the mid-19th century. Uh in the eighteen forties, uh is really really got going. And their signature, if signatures, if you will, or are, are a celebration of the Sabbath on Saturday instead of Sunday, and, and a strong focus on the second coming of Christ. And I know that's taught in a lot of uh, you know, uh Christian uh denominations, but they they like they really focus on that how that shit's happening now. And, uh, and they have been constantly incorrectly predicting it since the 1840s, which I always find kind of humorous, I guess. Like like when that's the focus of your denomination is like, you know, Christ is coming back in two years. We, the signs are, have been read. We, we all know it. And then two years pass. You're like, I meant three years. And then he doesn't come again. And now that shit's been happening for almost, almost 200 years. Like at one point, you'd be like, maybe we got this wrong. We've been, we've been wrong a lot of times now. But um. They also don't believe in hell uh, like uh, you know uh, most other Christians believe it. Uh, they kind of believe that those uh, who don't make it to heaven are just destroyed uh, instead of eternally punished. And there's a variety of other little differences. And, uh, and most other Christians find them to be extreme. Some find them to be even cultish uh, just as Seventh-day Adventists. And then there are the Davidians, which are a more extreme branch of the Adventists, uh, who felt that there are living prophets alive today. And that they uh, they follow the interpretation of scripture given to them by these modern prophets. And then there are the Branch Davidians, who are an even more extreme offshoot of this already extreme version of Christianity, who like take it to the compound level and uh, and have more extreme living prophets such as David Koresh. And since the Branch Davidians didn't reject the Bible, but rather interpret its revelations passages in extreme ways. and and followed a man they considered a modern-day prophet who also follows the Bible. That's why they're technically a sect, but more fun to call them a cult. Uh, And I think in the way of common modern usage, a cult being defined as worshiping a particular individual, I think the term cult does apply to them. Because uh, really, the Davidians would come to essentially worship Koresh in practice, if not in language. You know, I I mean he would manipulate them into thinking like no, I'm just I'm just one of you, but yeah, no, but you're not but you're like you know, like one of us, you know, who is the only dude who gets to sleep with everybody and uh is the only you know, is the dude who makes all the decisions and blah blah blah, you know. Uh because David Koresh, you know, he he would come to control their lives totally. His followers would, would literally follow him, most of them, unto their deaths. Uh they you know, they'd given him all their belongings, they'd given him their wives, given him the, their children. Uh, He controlled them in a way only a true cult leader can. And how did he become a cult leader? Well, let's find out. Let's get to know David in a time suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. The man who would come to be known as David Koresh was originally known as Vernon Wayne Howell. And Vernon was born in Houston, Texas. On August 17th, 1959, to Bonnie Clark, a 14-year-old unmarried high school dropout. His father, 20-year-old Bobby Wayne Howe, was a real winner. Getting a 13-year-old pregnant as a grown-ass man and then abandoning her and and soon marrying another woman. Step one towards becoming a cult leader, have a super awesome baby abandoning dad. Uh, Shortly after Vernon's birth, Bonnie married a man who had just been released from prison. According to family members who remember him as a, a highly physically abusive, short-tempered man who beat both his wife and infant son, uh, this is the equally important step two towards becoming a cult leader. Get a uh, super-ear, awesome-ear stepdad once your awesome dad abandons you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Hail Nimrod. Now, Lil Vern, I, I like, you know, I call him Vern. Uh, Lil Vern's mom, Bonnie, dealt with the abuse for nearly 18 months, then asked her mother, Erlene Clark, uh, for help. Earlene took in her teen daughter and grandson uh, then quickly had two more kids of her own, a daughter Sharon and a son Kenneth. With Vern, technically their nephew, they became a, a noisy trio in the Clark home, and more of, and had more of a sibling type relationship. That's that's step three in becoming a cult leader: have a kick-ass hillbilly family that includes a grandma who has babies and grandbabies simultaneously. Gotta say, no offense to listeners named Erlene, but Earlene sounds exactly like the name of a lady who had two more babies immediately after her recently divorced daughter had a baby. Uh, like, I bet after having those extra babies, Earlene had yet to hit 40 and could still rock the fuck out of a pair of Daisy Dukes. Like, I, I bet her ass still looked great. Uh, I'm getting a real solid picture of all this going on in my mind. Some some real, like, my name is Earl type stuff. According to the Clarks, uh, Lil Vern uh, was a bright and precocious child who grew up calling his maternal grandma uh, mama. And, <laughs> and that is step four. Form an unnatural grandma-mama relationship. Earlene's husband uh, was never affectionate with Vern. He was a hard-drinking, just macho man, country-type Texan. That's a quote. Part of a generation that did not encourage men to show emotion toward children unless it was time for discipline. That's fun. You know, the old kids uh, should be seen and not heard kind of parental figure. You know, just building healthy psyche since the dawn of man. Don't coddle that boy. You li- What, well, you liable to turn him gay? You hug your son? What the tarnation wrong with you? You tell him you love him? Well, why not just grab some dicks and stick them in his mouth while you're at it? I feel I feel like he was that kind of backwoods, old-school Texas male role model. Super homophobic, uh, super redneck asshole. R- real joy for everyone to be around, not just the kids. Uh, having an angry step-grandpa-dad. That's actually step five in how to become a cult leader. Uh, you know, it, it did wonders for John Wayne Gacy, right? Having a uh, unaffectionate, you know, uh, angry male role model in his life. 1964, Lil Vern's five, his 19-year-old uh, mama his real mama. Uh, Bonnie married for the second time. She married Roy Haldeman, and they took her son back to live with them in Dallas. Uh, Haldeman, David Koresh later claimed, administered physical discipline. Uh, when I used to act up, when I had a bad report card, can you imagine? We got our tails whomped. In a later interview, uh, Haldeman d- denied that Vernon grew up in an abusive household, saying, uh, we, had a nor- I don't know- we had our normal problems. We got along okay. Now, tough to say who's telling the truth here. Because Koresh is a documented liar. He he was a documented manipulative liar. Changed his backstory to suit, you know, whatever manipulative agenda he was working on at the time. And as far as stepdad goes, uh, if he was abusive, uh, child abusers, I don't feel like, are are known to generally be honest and forthcoming about their past abuse. It's not like, uh, in my experience, you you hear him admit it. Did I abuse David? Hell yes, I did. Never seen a kid I didn't want to whack. Fear of prison is the one and only reason. I'm not beating the living shit out of a kid right now. I got my eyeballs on a couple kids right now to move. Oh, dog, man, I would like to wamp them. Yeah, you don't usually hear him talking. About, uh, during the ear- early years of Dallas, Lil Vern attended public school but was plagued by what family sources said the school told them was a learning disability. He was held back to complete first grade twice, and in the third and fourth grades, he was put in special classes for learning disabled children. That's step six. Uh, don't be good at learning. Have a hard time acquiring useful knowledge, one of the most important steps in becoming a good, strong cult leader. 1973, when uh, Vern was uh, 14, it was decided he would go back to live with his grandparents in Houston. By then, the Clarks had moved to a one story brick house on Ardmore Avenue, a lovely tree lined street in Tyler, Texas. Uh, so, you know, uh, I guess it was, you know, the Houston ish. Grandma Mom was getting old now. You know, he, he knew she wasn't long for this earth. She'd just turned 38. Young by normal human standards, but old by backwoods Texas Grandma Mama standards. She'd been smoking a carton of menthols a day since she was six. And she'd been through 42 pregnancies already. No, no, but but he did move back to grandma's. There was a place for Teen Vern to sleep in Kenneth's room, uh, but he was fascinated with a small shed in the backyard. It was a mess when he first arrived, uh, but Teen Vern, or TV, as I like to call him, was handy with tools. TV cleaned and hammered and transformed his little shed into his own private place. It wasn't for lack of a bedroom in the house, Sister Aunt Sharon would later recall. He just liked the idea of fixing it up. And he also liked the idea of being able to read his growing collection of Pootie and Juju comics in private. He was particularly fond of issue uh, number 238, Juju Jesus. In that episode, Juju takes a hard hit to the back of the skull uh, during a game of horseshoes. Loses consciousness for about two years. When he comes to, he's convinced he's Juju Jesus, the second coming. And all he wants to do is talk Pootie's ears off uh, about archangels, a battle with demons, uh, the Antichrist, uh, and randomly, twice-baked potatoes. And Pootie can't take it, repeatedly yelling, Zip it, Juju. You sure squawk a lot for someone who ain't never said nothing. And put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Park it in the shed already. But Juju won't park it in the shed. He becomes convinced that Pooty is, in fact, the Antichrist. And he stabs Pootie in the gut. And then when he sees all the blood come out of Pooty's body, he freaks out, calls an ambulance, right? In the ER, Juju actually passes out, not Pootie. And when he comes to, he has a huge bandage on his head. Turns out doctors forgot to take the horseshoe out of his head during the code. No one noticed that the horseshoe earlier actually went into his head, into his cartoon head somehow. And then, and then he's fine. No more juju Jesus. Yeah. And Pooty's fine except for a huge scar and chronic pain from a stab wound that leads to a lifelong battle with opiate uh, painkillers. Well, teen Vern thought, what if the horseshoe didn't scramble his brain? What if that horseshoe made him think straight for the first time in his life? What if God put that horseshoe in his brain and the doctor messed up by taking it out? In all seriousness, uh, yeah. First time listeners, if you're very confused, uh, Pootie and Juju is just a re- recurring comic that pops up in the show. Uh, I'd hate you. I'd hate for you to spend. Actually, I would love for you to spend a lot of time uh, googling Pootie and Juju, but the, but I want you to keep listening. I don't want you to spend a lot of time and then be like, "Fuck that guy. He fucking wasted three hours of my life trying to find Pootie and Juju on Google." In all seriousness, the backyard shed became a typical teenager's room. He fashioned a bed. Ran an extension cord for a black light. Covered the walls with posters of 70s rock star Ted Nugent. The Nuge. Step seven in becoming a cult leader. Listen to so much Nuge. Uh, That's right. There were were fluorescent designs and posters. It was like a clubhouse at a former friend years later. Vernon taught himself how to play guitar. Hanging out in that shed. Step eight, man. Learn guitar. That one's actually pretty important. Learn some kind of instrument. Old, Old Charlie Manson. He wooed his family with some guitar. Aunt Sister Sharon also recalled that there were a lot of girls hanging around as well. They came from around the neighborhood, ostensibly to visit her, but really came over to meet this dreamy new guy in the shed with the wavy blonde hair, right, playing rock and roll. I don't think he uh, really had to chase girls, Sharon would later say. Uh, Everyone that met Vernon liked him. Step nine, be charismatic. Arguably the most important step in forming a cult. Even old Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate fame, fellow Texan, while not physically handsome like Koresh, was charismatic. All aboard! Get on the spaceship! Remember, remember that guy? That guy's, that guy's a special place in my heart. Now, around 1974, when Vern was roughly 15 or 16, he moved back to Houston with his real mom. Uh, grandma Mama Erlene's shithead husband uh, didn't care for Teen Vern anymore, uh, any more than he cared for Lil Vern, you know? Teen Vern had long hair, so he probably thought he was definitely gay. Definitely smoking hippie dope in the shit. I'm telling you, Erlene, if that boy don't have a joint in his mouth, he's got a dick in it. Get him off my property! Off my property. My, my property. I feel like he I feel like he really emphasized my property. Uh, I don't know for sure. He said or those thought those things, but I feel like I feel strongly this is close to the truth. When when he was uh, with his real mom, or whether you know, or if he's with his grandma, mom, one person he was always with was Jesus. Teen Vern was into the was into Jesus. Uh, both his mom and grandma were practicing Seventh Day Adventists, and Howells' uh, early life was steeped in Bible study, governed by strict moral codes. Uh, applied the Ten Commandments, literally banned smoking, drinking, fornication. And that's step 10, have very religious parents become extremely well-versed in the Bible. Next to being charismatic, maybe the most important step in becoming a cult leader uh, Koresh would actually go on to memorize the Bible as, as in the whole thing, which is extremely impressive to me if he, if he actually uh, did that. Supposedly, he memorized the entire Bible. Uh, when he was 16, again, I, I, even as I say that, I know that sounds ridiculous because it's a very big book full of a lot of old timey words and it doesn't always flow from one, one subject to the next, you know, with smooth transitions, which makes it even harder to memorize. So the dude had some kind of gift, but uh, yeah, that was how actually how he would later get various cult members. They were just so impressed where it's like, they could talk about any section of the Bible. He didn't even have to look at it and he would just boom, throw out the scripture just like perfectly, which, which is pretty amazing. Uh, when he was 16, uh, teen Vern left public school, went to the church run Dallas junior Academy, uh, TV dropped out of church school in the 10th grade. Uh, and you're like, wait a minute, 16th, 10th grade. Remember, he went to numerous uh, grades multiple times. So he's a little older than the average 10th grader. Uh, Earlene Clark said he was told that Vernon got into a dispute with a teacher, was feuding with his parents. Aunt's Sister Sharon recalled that he was having a lot of trouble at home with Bonnie and Roy. So Bonnie had to take him out of school there. So he headed back to Grandma Mama's house. Earlene, Sergeant Dumb Shit, recently moved out of Houston. I'm sorry, Uh, I uh, mentioned—oh, no, yeah, they moved away from, like, Tyler, and and now they're in the little picturesque rural town of Chandler, Texas. Now, while nowadays Chandler is a bustling small city with over 2,000 people and not one but two Mexican restaurants and an air conditioner repair place, I checked, and it's only 30 miles from Canton, Texas, home of one of the world's largest flea markets each and every month, it was not so metropolitan. Uh, so not, not so, sorry, excuse me, not so cosmopolitan, not so much of a metropolis back in the 70s. It, it was around 7, 800 God-fearing rednecks. Step 11, surround yourself with God-fearing rednecks. Thought uh, throughout the years of shuttling back and forth between his mom and grandparents, teen firm was kind of left to find his own way into manhood. Uh, there was never really a good male role model for him. Someone who really took an interest in him and genuinely wanted to spend time with him and teach him something sister-aunt Sharon would later say. Teen Vern's sexual education began early, an example set by his mom and sister Aunt Sharon, his surrogate little sister, who married a soldier when she was 14. 14. 14. Man, rural Texas in the 70s. They did not waste time getting hitched, at least not in this story. Man. Oh, look, look at that old maid. Look at that old maid. Man. She's 15 years old. She still don't have a husband. Oh, she will surely die alone. Uh, Years later, Grandma Mom Earlene would point to Koresh's early role models when it came to sex when she tried to defend him from pedophile, uh, excuse me, pedophile accusations. She suggested that uh, Koresh's teen wives in the Waco compound, you know, will be sucking into soon enough, uh, ought to be viewed in the context of the prevailing sexual mores of rural East Texas. Uh, The youngest girl that had a baby at the Branch of compound was 14 years old, she said. He never raped anybody in his life. They grow up faster. Man, sweet rationalization of your own shitty choices, Earlene. Man, this ain't the 1800s. 14-year-olds having babies, that ain't normal. Ain't no big deal what he been what he been done. Girls get horny here in Texas by age 9 or 10. They need a strong man to guide them into womanhood. Why, I had my first baby at 7. I had my first baby 7 years old. Used to bring her to kindergarten with me my 4th or 5th time through. Uh, really painting a picture here, huh? Not excusing what he would later do, but Koresh didn't exactly get a head start in life from his family. Clearly did not come from any type of educated, upwardly mobile, uh, strong family unit. 1978 started off as a real solid year for Tane Vern. He was 18. He had a new truck, guitar, plenty of girls, sun, sex, trucks, and tunes. It's all you need in Texas. 1978 have kick-ass life. He made enough money in construction to afford the down payment on a new Silverado pickup truck. I think my dad had one of those, actually. Uh, actually, I know he had a Silverado, but I think he actually had a late 70s Silverado. Uh, it was black with red velour interior. Oh, so dope. Got some red velour. Are you kidding me? It was all full of kick-ass A-Tracks, Van Halen, Aerosmith, Eric Clapton, the Nuge, Teddy Nugent, man, Detroit-based rock star who could shred his battle axe, pick up a real axe, do some outdoorsy shit, chop down some trees, kill some deer, fucking rock out a butt rock solo. Teen Vern got really into bodybuilding that year as well, pumping up uh, those biceps to the point they almost looked too big for his frame. Hell oh, yeah, man. Curls for the girl. Curls for the girls. He's jacked. No responsibilities to having casual sex before anyone cared about condoms and when AIDS wasn't a thing. So much fun. So much fun. Uh, Debbie Owens, then 16, working as a waitress at an all-you-can-eat catfish restaurant, counted herself lucky to be Dayton Vernon. He was a typical teenager, she said in an interview. A rocker who carried his guitar everywhere he went. If you check out pics from him when he was young, he was a good-looking dude, man. He had his long, wavy locks all cut up, strong jawline. Very, very much a 70s rock star vibe. Could have easily gotten work as a roadie or guitarist for like ZZ Top, Jethro Tull, Aerosmith. Uh, He ended up recording some music, uh, actually. Uh, I don't have a—I couldn't find any of his early stuff, but I found some stuff he did on the compound, thanks to a time sucker. The recording quality's not great, but the music, not bad for what it is. In my opinion, I would say as cult leaders go— better musician than charles manson you know and charles manson not bad so let's 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 hear a little bit of this thanks to space lizard monty uh for bringing this to my attention right before the recording when i was doing a little instagram live uh this this song is called madman in waco seriously that that actually is the name of the song madman in waco yeah It's not, to not what it appears to be. Didn't hurt anybody. Come on, anybody. We're In the night of the Yeah. We're risking our lives for the Lord. Risking their lives. The women and to their house. Just helping some women kids. That's all you guys. He's just helping some women kids. He actually, he went away from his initial lyrics were different instead of, instead of helping women and children. Initially it was fucking some kids in my compound, taking their wives from the husbands, being a butt rock pedophile is what God wants for me. So that was the rough draft. And then that's the final version you heard course, the rough draft is nonsense, but uh, yeah, <laughs> you find out he's a creep. But he could sing pretty well. He could sing pretty well. You know, not bad, not bad, a lot better than I could do. So when his new gal pal, the old catfish buffet waitress Owens, uh, uh wasn't working, she's hanging out of the community pool. You know, with uh, with old Koresh in a mobile home subdivision. There was a little open air pavilion next to the pool with a roof and electrical outlet. And during the summer, old Vern man, he turned it into his own little mini compound. Set up his amplifier, practiced for hours some of those sweet tunes you just got to hear. And he would draw a crowd, man, so, you know, with his hot riffs, copied from the Nuge and Clapton, playing to all those sweet teens and bikinis, yeah, his glory years. Well, actually, later be his glory years when he was fucking God amongst his people. But, uh, yeah, he was, like, he was like Matthew McConaughey's character, uh, David Wooderson, Dazed and Confused. Remember that iconic role? Man, that's what I love about these girls, man. I keep getting older. They stay the same age. Teen Verm, he would zone out, Owens would say. Uh, it was like nothing existed when he played until he, unless he messed up. And then he was super critical of himself, a real perfectionist about chord changes. Music was the main thing in his world. I was the second, she said. Also reminds me of Charles Manson. If Charles Manson and David Koresh were just a little more musically talented, they could have been rock stars instead of, uh, you know, cult leaders that got people killed. Like, like, honestly, how weird is that? Owens said the most striking thing about Vern was the effect he had on younger boys such as uh, old uncle brother, Kenneth, then in his early teens, and others who said, you know, she said idolized him. Guitarist Grant Cook, who sometimes practiced with Howell and later become a professional musician, said the same. Said he loved hanging out with much younger boys. He, he really pumped him up, played with their self-esteem. You know, they thought it was so cool that this older guy would, you know, take the time to talk to 14 and 16-year-olds. Yeah, Owens would say it was real important to him that they thought highly of him, respected his music, his brain, his values. Uh, yeah, and step 12, becoming a cult leader feed upon the adoration of the easily manipulated people or of easily manipulated people younger than yourself. Another important step. His younger uh, uncle brother, Kenneth, said T. Vern taught him to drive, counsel him on facing up to older bullies at school. I learned to stand up for myself. Kenneth said he taught me that. Never, Owen said, not once in the seven months they dated did she ever hear Vern talk about the Bible or religion. He was taking a little break. Now, what She did discover that he was seeing another girl in Dallas. Oh, man, that's classic Koresh. Always got women on the side. Always, uh, he was seeing another girl in Dallas. A girl with uh, family members. Uh, uh, a girl whose family members said uh, she eventually became pregnant, and uh, and then Owen said that they planned to have a meeting to talk things out. But Teen Vern never showed up. Yeah, yeah, I bet he didn't show up to that meeting. You know, when you get another girl pregnant, and then you're like, hey, I gotta go, I gotta go work things out with their family, and then I'll come talk to you. There's there's no real way out of making that not a horrific encounter. Hey, baby, I really messed up. Oh my god, did you cheat on me? Yes. The thing is. I've been cheating on you the whole time. We've been together, and I have a baby uh, come with someone else I've, I've also been making future plans with, and I need to sort some things out with her and her parents before you and I can work things out. I mean, we're still cool, right? Are you, are you mad at me? You're mad at me, aren't you? Uh, so the back half of 78, not as good for old Teen Vern. In the months that followed, t- uh, TV spiraled down into what family members and, and friends described as a pivotal emotional crisis. He taught himself to be a capable carpenter but held no steady job. He formed a band, but didn't play a gig. Uh, may have been uh, well-versed in the Bible, but he lacked even a high school degree. L- lost his catfish buffet teen hottie in Chandler, and the parents of his pregnant girlfriend in Dallas weren't allowing him to see her either. He had no permanent residence, sometimes living in Dallas, sometimes living in Chandler. And, and you know. And during this lost, confusing period of his early adult life, he, he also uh, chose to confront uh, one of the mysteries of his youth, the disappearance of his biological father when he was an infant, Bobby Wayne Howe. Where the hell is Bobby Wayne? Who seen Bobby Wayne? Where B W at? Where B Dub at? He was sick of asking those questions. Where B W? Hey, hey, you seen B W? He was sick. Of, he was sick and asking that question. Man, if Bobby Wayne ain't a rural Texas name, I don't know. I don't know what is. This is my pappy, Bobby Wayne. Go on now, get the man some sweet tea, get some cornbread. Go on, get some grits. Get some grits. Slather some of that butter down on the grits. Pour that sweet tea on the grits. Pour on the grits. Like I don't know why I had to get high there, but that made it funnier to me. Put some corn cool powder on those grits. The more excited he gets about grits, the higher his boy. Get, get a man some grits. Put a little butter on those grits. Put a butter on those grits. Put a little butter on those grits. Anyway, Teen Vernon. <laughs> sorry about that. Teen Vernon was able to locate his paternal grandma, Jean uh, Holub, who arranged a meeting between uh, father and son. When his dad pulled up, Jean would later state in an interview, they grabbed each other and hugged each other. And that was a wonderful thing. Vernon was delighted to find out that his father was both a carpenter and a skilled mechanic. Started telling his dad, I I know how to do carpenter work. It was just natural. And I I'm a mechanic, and that came natural. Now I know why I got it from you. Uh, as happy as he was to be reunited with sweet B dub, sweet Bible. Who's seen Bobby Wayne? Get some to Uh he was pretty bummed out about getting ready to have a kid with a woman he would not be allowed to raise a child with. So he turned to God and he threw his life into church uh, big time. Step thirteen. Cannot this is a can't miss step on the journey towards becoming a cult leader. Have a low point in your life. Feel compelled to dramatically throw your life into the church. Uh, Start going to church like all the time, like, you know, nine days a week. Memorize the Bible. Uh, Sometime in 1979, Koresh starts uh, heading to the Seventh-day Adventist church with Sister Aunt Sharon in nearby Tyler, Texas. He was going through a chastising, Sharon said, seeking atonement for the guilt he felt over his sexual appetite. He told her, I'm having a hard time keeping these thoughts out of my head. He prayed a lot, and he lost a lot of weight. The Tyler congregation was delighted to have a young, apparently fallen away member return to the faith. When members learned he was out of work, Harriet Phelps, an elderly woman whose sons were grown, offered him a room in exchange for work around her farm. Former fellow church members said the young man seemed to be burning with guilt over his past sex life and, and resentment that he had not been permitted to marry his ex-girlfriend. Uh, the girl he was with in the Dallas area was about to have a baby, a former elder named Bob Bachman said. <laughs> "What want name Bob Bachman. Uh, it was just killing him because her parents uh, didn't want him around anymore. He really missed the girl and felt terribly rejected that he wasn't able to be with her. Bachman also said, Vern also professed to feeling intense guilt over his lifelong devotion to playing rock and roll. He would not even touch a guitar, Bachman said. The rock songs implied very strongly to him that he was under a satanic influence. So he uh, you know, he had washed all that away. This is when you for sure have taken religion way too far. Way too far. Look, if religion is you know, making you a more positive person, man, go for it. Fucking soak it up. But when you start thinking... When you start thinking rock and roll, just all of it is the devil's work. Get out. Get out. When you think playing some power chords and singing about young love represents the devil tugging on your soul strings. What a colossal waste of time all that shit is. I'd like to think of God as real, that he has better stuff to worry about than who's listening to Aerosmith. In uh, a church with strict moral values, the reform to Vernon Howe, soon to be David Koresh, suddenly became everyone's judge, especially when it came to the conduct of women. He told at least one uh, father that his daughter was wearing what he thought was in, in a modest dress, Bachman said. He became very straight-laced. And whatever his feelings of sexual guilt, he used the church to develop relationships with other women, both platonic and sexual. Hypocrisy. Another sign of a cult leader. Uh, you know, we're, we're all hypocrites, but they take it further than most. He alluded that he was attracted to me, recalled Bachman's wife, Maggie, who was much older than Vernon. His, uh, his younger sister, Aunt Sharon, said, I never got uh, tired of the dual family labels in this uh sorry, I never get tired of the dual family labels and the stuff, Uh, said she believes that this period was the last best chance for anyone to have uh, interrupted Vern Howell's transformation into David Koresh. His life might have turned out differently, she said, had Howell not been captivated by a powerful series of revival meetings sponsored by the church. All right, so he's real in, he's getting real serious about this, getting real judgy, getting real, real, real back into church. And then he goes to these Revelation seminars, they were conducted by an evangelist named Jim Gilly of Arlington, Texas. Step four, 14, excuse me, of how to become a co-leader, attend something called a revelation seminar. That doesn't sound fun at all. There's no way you're not getting introduced to a bunch of crazy apocalyptic shit at that get together. Well, the seminar featured dramatic, even frightening images and a multimedia portrayal of Armageddon. Ah, sounds so much fun. Gilly, uh, who still presents his prophecy uh, panorama in the U.S. and abroad. I actually found some YouTube seminars. A rousing speaker. Uh, well, uh, he was described as a rousing speaker in some of the articles I read. I, I wouldn't consider him rousing. Maybe when he was younger, he was a, he was a rouser. Um, but, yeah, but he had this video representation of the apocalypse for, as foretold in the book of Revelation. You know, earthquakes, pestilence, religious persecutions, combined with a video of current events, you know, seemed to point, toward, point towards this uh, imminent millennium. Uh, you know, that things are going to happen right now, it, by the way, I've, I've eased way off on uh religious judgment on the show, but if you're presenting a, uh, like, like a, as part of a tour, this crazy presentation about how revelation, uh, is coming, you know, like judgment is coming right now, fucking knock it off. No good has ever come from those presentations. Never. And it's never been true but they went all the time. David got really into this. We went every night of the week, Sharon would say, and Vern couldn't stop talking about the details. You know, it seemed to bring all his years of Bible study into focus. He felt called upon, he felt he could sp- expand on Gilly's teachings. Gilly later said in an interview that Howell approached him one night, offered to reorganize his own his own show, change its message. Uh Gilly rejected that offer. Uh yeah, I'm sure he did. Hey, hey dude, hey, this is this is this is my apocalyptic vision. You want to fucking get your own stuff by all means, but you don't you don't come in And tell me what kind of crazy I'm supposed to tell other people. Um, And and that's when everything really took off, Sharon said. That's when he became very serious about his new vision. Uh, Another word for serious in this this context could be insane. This is when he became extremely insane. Uh, Vern said that even Mr. Gilly had a piece of the puzzle missing. She said, the missing piece, Hal told her in earnest, was the seventh seal. Something that could only be opened by a new prophet. Step 15. Start thinking that other crazy religious zealots aren't religiously crazy enough. They don't quite get it. God wants you to be even crazier than they are. The seven seals, as described in the book of Revelation, bind a scroll held in God's right hand that prophesizes the calamities that precede the apocalypse. Uh, these following verses and Vern's interpretation of them would become the core of his life's mission. Going forward, he would never shut the fuck up about the seven seals. Seriously, it becomes a whole thing later with the FBI. So Book of Revelations, Chapter 6, this is from the English Standard Version, so we can all understand what he was so obsessed with, says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, "Come." By the way, as I keep saying, "Come." I just picture like junior high, high school kids in church hearing a sermon like this and just trying so hard not to fucking laugh out loud. Just picturing like like come in the sexual sense that I would be that kid, just like, oh God, don't don't laugh, don't get it, don't get in trouble, don't make a scene. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Johnny Ringo references that verse in Tombstone. Uh, for you fellow Western fans, by the way. Remember? It's uh, seen very early on in the movie. He just, he just uses a different translation. He says, Behold the pale horse. The man who sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. That was after they busted up that, that, uh, that wedding, the Mexican wedding, and shot the, shot the priest. Anyway, back to this translation. And they were given authority over the, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. (laughs) Earthquake? What the hell? A great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath is come and who can stand? Step 17, become obsessed with the book of Revelations and your role in it. Not only believe that a religious apocalypse is coming, but also believe that it's coming soon and you're going to have a major role. You're going to be the star of the show. Man, well, yeah, that that verse, those verses, uh, David Crush's followers would hear over and over and over. He just became obsessed with it until the very end. Sharon said Vern was convinced that it was time to have a new prophet and a new light in the Seventh Day Adventist Church, and that he was quite possibly that person. He was the prophet. Vernon tried hard to bring this message to the Tyler, Texas congregation, but uh, you know, uh, at that point, they had had their fill of him. Following his formal rejection from the church, he took a high-speed turn into the insular world of the Branch Davidians, a group formed 60 years ago by a man named Victor Hotef back in 1935. Hotef was another disaffected Seventh-day Adventist who quit the church after becoming convinced that he was a prophet, and the church kicked him and his followers out. Churches tend to do that when you go from follower to new potential leader. They, they They don't care for it historically. Cool your jets, buddy. We are here to talk about old prophets, not follow new ones. Don't rock the prophet boat. Well, since their inception, the Branch Davidians have always had a, a prophet living uh, in their midst, someone who could convey the message. And the Branch Davidians uh, are still around, by the way. They just reorganized under a new name, the Branch, the Lord, our righteousness. One modern incarnation of the Branch Davidians uh, exists under the leadership of Charles Pace, a follower of Ben and Lois Roden, who was a member of the Branch Davidians since the mid-'70s. He claims that Koresh twisted the Bible's teachings by fathering more than a dozen children, way more than a dozen, uh, with members' wives. Uh, or I guess he had more than, uh, uh way more than a dozen pregnant at the end there. Uh, Pace feels that the Lord has anointed me and appointed me to be their leader, but he claims that he is not a prophet, but a teacher of righteousness. Eh, that sounds like a tomato-tomato kind of thing. Uh, David Koresh claimed that he was a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I'm a, I'm a righteousness teacher who God speaks to me as a righteousness teacher. Uh, like the branch of Indians under Koresh, this incarnation is awaiting for the end times. So, you know, good that they're not into the kid fucking anymore. Not good that they're still hanging out, waiting for God to come punish the wicked and following some weirdo. Uh, there's also a hand, handful of former members of Cresh's Waco compound who still believe he's a prophet and are still to this day awaiting his return. They should, they should join up with a like, couple of people left over from Heaven's Gate, form some kind of support group. Uh, in 1981, 22-year-old uh, Vern moves to Waco, Joins the branch to join the branch Davidians. The Waco section of the branch Davidians was headed at that time by Lois Roden, uh, who assumed the role of chief prophet after the death of her husband Ben. She was in her 60s at this time. Everyone understood she was, she would, you know, not going to live forever. She'd soon have a successor. Here, Vern found his niche in an isolated insular group that was willing, perhaps even anxious, to accept uh, the, the claim of divine inspiration. Right place, right time, man. Key to success in a lot of fields. Howell recruited his brother, Uncle Kenneth, to the sect. Got to stay close to at least one, you know, two for one relative. The two rented an apartment, working construction to pay expenses. Spending their off hours, recruiting new members on a nearby Seventh Day Adventist campus, or going door to door in the neighborhoods. Where I'm guessing overall, they were about as well received as LDS missionaries or Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, during this period, uh, Howell developed a, a a close relationship with fellow nut job Perry Jones, who ultimately gave Howell uh, permission to marry his 14 year old daughter Rachel. How's first and only legal wife? How how gross is this? Again, this this is not happening in eighteen thirteen. This is happening in nineteen eighty two. MTV is on the air. MTV is a thing. Old Vern is a twenty two year old marrying a fucking eighth grader legally. Ugh. Lifelong member of the Branch Davidians, Jones uh, was convinced that the federal government posed an oppressive danger to devout Christians. So now he starts getting these anti-government stuff in his mind. Religious fundamentalism, government paranoia, strong interest in firearms, literally never a good combination. Uh, He was real involved with our rights, freedom of religion, the right to bear arms. Uncle Brother Kenneth would later say to Jones, uh, and Jones would later die in an armed standoff with federal agents. Of course he would. Uh, the three took long trips to revival meetings, carrying along Davidian tracks filled with elaborate diagrams, you know, regarding the faith. As they drove, the car would be filled with talk of God, government, and religion. Ah, sounds like a fun road trip. They went to religious tent revivals where Vern's charisma and gift for public speaking ended up drawing so many people around to listen to him that the actual revival organizers would have to have, have police ask him to leave. Officer, arrest that man. He's, he's stealing my thunder. He's stealing my thunder. Uh... Sometime around 1984, shit starts getting real weird in this story. I know it's already been pretty weird, but it gets substantially weirder. After David's arrival at the Branch Davidian compound, uh, after marrying a 14-year-old, David begins having sex with the group's current leader, Lois Roden, a woman who was 68 years old in 1984. This has to be possibly the only time in history where a dude has a 14-year-old wife and a 68-year-old cult leader side piece. How incredibly odd is that? And what an obvious play for power. That wasn't about physical attraction. Get the fuck. She's 68 years old. You know, she's a 60-year-old woman named Lois. I've looked at pictures, and she looks like a 78-year-old woman named Lois. She, she was not a Cher or a Jane Fonda. Uh, did God tell him to do that? God, God spoke through him my ass. God tell him to bang a 16-year, 68-year-old behind his 14-year-old wife's back? Get out of here. Clearly in his way into a position to take over the group. Total con man, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. Well, I'll tell you who's not fucking both a 14-year-old and a 16, uh, 68-year-old today sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Aunt Edna's Geriatric Vaginal Wrinkle Cream. Aunt Edna's Vaginal Wrinkle Cream will shave decades off your AARP COOCH. Specifically formulated in a Swiss laboratory by combining tanning oil, butter, goat cheese, hydrochloric acid, pumpkin spice. Aunt Edna's Geriatric Vaginal Wrinkle Cream Will make your 68 year old cock holster look like a 19 year old honeypot. Try it for 30 days and then get the hell out. Get the hell out of here. That's not a sponsor. I couldn't hold it together for that one. That's ridiculous. No, <laughs> no. Today's Time like is brought to you by Lisa. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, Lisa is an innovative direct cons- uh, to consumer online mattress brand that is also socially conscious, unlike David Koresh. It, and it's comfortable. It's got a patented, universal, adaptive feel. Lisa is designed for all types of sleepers and features three premium foam layers. Uh I, I like how I don't notice my wife moving around on her side of the bed. Right now she's got a she got a cold and she's been super annoying at night. <laughs> I know she sounded heartless, but she's sneezy and she moves around all the time. And I like that at least I can't feel her movements on the Lisa. And she likes how, you know, I snore somehow uh, way less on the Lisa. Not sure why that happens, but I but I feel more rested, and so does she. We love our Lisa. Uh definitely makes life better. Now, Lisa is continuing to expand his offerings to include the Lisa pillow, blanket, foundation, frame. So try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door or try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, and Virginia Beach and at over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. And now for President's Day. Happy President's Day, by the way. Uh, get one hundred and twenty-five dollars off the Lisa mattress plus a free pillow when you go to leesa. dot com slash timesuck. That's leesa. dot com slash timesuck. One hundred and twenty-five dollars off plus a free pillow. Offer valid until February twenty eighth. Get it. Get in on that Lisa deal now, time suckers. Mm hmm. Got him so <laughs> so glad. So glad. <laughs> the sponsors they only check their sponsor portion of the time sucks I'll tell you that little secret other podcasters uh I hope they don't listen to the whole thing <laughs> I doubt they would they're gonna care for the aunt edna geriatric vaginal wrinkle cream bleed in oh that was too much fun that is the most fun I've had recording in a while on this I always have fun but that was i don't know i cracked my i hope you guys like that i clearly like that okay all right okay back back to a time now when Koresh was not sleeping on Elisa. He was sleeping with a 60 year old uh, branch Davidian leader named Lois. Also, in 1984, a feud breaks out in the wake of a compound between Koresh and George Roden, Lois's son, her 54 year old son, and it results in most of the congregation leaving the compound and going to live with Koresh in nearby Palestine, Texas for a couple years. Now, 1985, Lois' son, George Roden, threatens Koresh, still going by Vern at this time, with a gun to stay away from his mom even files a federal lawsuit accusing Vern of raping his mom, brainwashing her, and turning her against him. God, that must have been awkward. Uh, I, I, how do you even do that? How do, you, how do you get a federal lawsuit? What are you suing over? I'm tired of this, this guy's raping my mom. Brainwashing her. Shouldn't your mom be the one to come in here? Now she thinks it's fun. I don't get to take him to make him keep his dick on my mom. It sounds really so weird, this 50-year-old guy. Make, make him keep his dick away from my mom. I picture him talking in a high, uh, high-pitched high voice, too. In June of 1986, Michael motherfucking McDonald re-releases his second solo album, No Looking Back, featuring his latest top-ten hit off the Running Scared soundtrack, Sweet Freedom. Check it out. Shine, sweet freedom. Shine your light on me. Oh, 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 it's been too long since you suckers got McDonald. That was a proper McDonalding. Long Live Triple M, Billy Crystal, Gregory Hines, both in the video for that song. Oh, such a great 80s vibe. Ah, oh, man, I, I got to say, this this is quickly becoming my favorite episode of Time uh, <laughs> uh November 10th, 1986, Lois dies, leaves Koresh in charge of the cult. He really gave it to her good, I guess. Dicked his way right into leadership. Uh, and, he, and he does start going by the name of David Koresh around this time. He said the switch arose from his belief that he was now uh, head of the biblical house of David, first king of all the Israelites. Uh, the name David Koresh is a combination of King David and the Hebrew name for Cyrus the Great. Uh, according to the Bible, Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, was the monarch under whom the Babylonian uh, captivity ended. First year of his reign, he was prompted by God to decree that the temple in Jerusalem should be rebuilt, and such Jews as cared to might return to their land for this purpose. Maybe I should change my name, right, uh, for this, for the cult of curious. How about uh, Bojangles Nimrod, uh, Nimrod Lucifina. Michael motherfucking Juju, Putty Uh No, no, I, I don't like puti I don't care for this. Uh, maybe Nimrod Chicotilo. Uh, Lusofino Chikatilo, they're nice. I, I like her. I like I like to wrestle her sometime on cold, hard Ukrainian soil. Uh, son George, who assumed uh, he would be the successor, not happy about Koresh getting the keys to the throne. few months uh, later, shit gets so cray-cray. Uh, George Roden refuses to acknowledge David's claim to power, challenges Mr. Koresh to a very ghoulish contest. Uh, the challenge is wh- whoever can bring back the dead, that person deserves to be the true leader of the Branch Davidians. Can you imagine going to your church and hearing your pastor, priest, rabbi, imam, throw something like that down? Oh, you think you can do this better than me? You think you can you think you can lead this flock? All right, prove it. Meet me at the cemetery midnight. We're gonna dig up Sister Nancy. And if you can put some life back into her long, dead, rotted corpse, well then by God, you can run this motherfucker. I especially think it'd be entertaining if if the if the head of the church actually said motherfucker in that situation. Well, Koresh declines the challenge, probably because he's more con man than prophet. Right? He, he's not actually uh, totally insane, like we'll find out George is, and he knows his strength is in manipulative words, not in performing actual miracles. George, we will soon discover, is truly mentally ill. He is bananas crazy. Uh, people involved in this case say Mr. Roden then <laughs> then dug up a coffin from the cemetery on the compound grounds. Oh, my God. Inside is the skeleton of a woman identified in news reports at the time as uh, Anna Hughes, former cult member who had died 20 years old, earlier. Been dead 20 years. Could not have smelled very good. Got to be mostly skeleton at that point. Man, back-to-back sucks involving grave robbing, by the way. How strange is that? Mr. Roden put the coffin—he puts the coffin in the cult's chapel and three times tries to resurrect the woman with prayers. Uh, And I think we all know how successful that was. I wonder if while praying for a dead woman to pop out of a coffin that's been set up in the middle of a chapel, anyone uh, had some serious second-guessing going on about joining this cult, right? Was anyone whispering just like, "This, this is weird, right? I mean, this is really weird, right? Meanwhile, Koresh starts looking uh, into laws that Mr. Roden might be violating for the whole desecration of a corpse thing he's do- he's got going on. Finally, he reports to the McLennan County Sheriff's Office that Mr. says Mr. Roden is engaging in corpse abuse. Uh, he's allegedly told he needs evidence, not just hearsay that this is going on. He needs pictures of what Roden is doing. So he and, his, and some of his followers, they go Rambo. They go Rambo to gather some evidence <laughs> on the morning. This just keeps getting weirder. On the morning of November 3rd, 1987, Koresh and seven of his followers, dressed in camouflage uniforms, combat boots, charcoal smeared under their eyes like they're extras in platoon, armed with military-style rifles and shotguns, they crawl onto the Waco compound. Right? They were still living in Palestine. The feud still separating the group. They prepared a map of the property, pinpointed where each member of the party would take up uh, their position. They sneak onto the grounds before dawn, make it to little hiding spots, wait until mid-afternoon, you know, plain soldier. Before going into action, when they when they move in to locate to locate the corpse, they find George Roden hiding behind a tree with an Uzi. I wish I was this is fucking this is so crazy. This is so just off the charts ridiculous. He's hiding this 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 damn near six year old man hiding behind a tree with an Uzi to keep people from taking his uh, you know, corpse he's trying to resurrect. And a gun battle breaks out. Looney versus Looney. Uh Roden takes a bullet to the chest but <laughs> survives. Vern and his followers are arrested on attempted murder charges. Jury finds the followers not guilty. They claim all just fired warning shots into the air. Kresh, you know, he claimed he was like, you know, trying to shoot near him but not hit him. He tried separately. His trial ends in a hung jury. Also wrote at this time, the dude who Kresh shot and almost killed, he ends up in jail on a separate contempt of court charge he received during a whole different trial where he had a federal lawsuit going on. Something equally stupid to keep your dick out of my mom, I'm sure. Kresh is now accepted by all the Branch Davidians as the leader of the group. Roden, he's on the outs, right? He, uh, Koresh won the gun battle, so clearly God wants him to lead the group. Uh, when Roden gets out of jail, he's a completely broken man. He's com- just just destroyed. He ends up uh, uh, staying in Texas, where a couple years later, in, in 89, he kills another Branch Davidian he thinks is both a rival for his power and, and an assassin sent by Koresh. Kills him with an axe. Man, axe puts an exclamation point on homicide, does it not? And he spends the rest of his short life in a mental hospital. Of course he does. Uh, after being found not guilty by reason of insanity, he would escape twice from that mental hospital and just kind of wander around for a while before uh, getting caught again. Second time he he escapes, he, he suffers a heart attack that he then dies from. So uh, now it's in the late 80s. Koresh is in full control of the Branch Davidians. Vern officially has become David. You, you know, Step 18, change your name, reinvent yourself into some type of living prophet. Uh, during the next five years of his leadership, Howell transforms the, the cluster of dilapidated bungalows that had been at Mount Carmel into a fortress-like compound. Greatly expands its weapons arsenal, begins training his followers in military tactics. And this is important to remember as we go further into this story, right? This is not some harmless group of people just doing Bible studies. They're doing militia training. Uh, legally changes, yeah, name, okay, I already said that. Uh, David David, Koresh, uh, Koresh you know. He's, he's a sinful incarnation of Jesus Christ. Why not? If you're going to go, you know, with the whole I'm a prophet of God thing, go big, go, go full Jesus. Uh, he issued his new light declaration shortly after taking over power at the compound, proclaiming that while his male followers would eventually find their perfect mates in heaven, their earthly wives and daughters were reserved exclusively for his sexual gratification and procreation. How the fuck as a dad do you allow that to happen to your family? Man, super important step 19 of becoming a cult leader. Let your followers know that you're the only dude allowed to do some fucking. Make them think this is God's will. It's very important to castrate for all intent and purposes the other male members of your group. Colt can't have a bunch of swinging dicks. Just one. One undisputed alpha male in lamb's clothing. Can't have a bunch of other fornicators hanging around vying for the throne. Only the lamb is to be given the job to raise up the seed of the house of David, isn't he? Koresh asked rhetorically in a tape-recorded message he sent out to Australia in 89. Koresh ended up fathering multiple children by different women in the group. Uh, His house of David doctrine was based on the purported revelation that involved the procreation of 24 children by chosen women in the community. These 24 would were to serve as the ruling elders over the millennium after the return of Christ, right? Just, just you know, correct. Look, look, man, I'm not banging your wife because I think she's super hot and I'm a sex-crazed maniac. I'm not banging a lot of other people's wives and or daughters for a similar reason. Look, I got to crank out 24 future elders, and I can't do that with one hot lady. If anyone's suffering here, it is me. Do you have any idea how chafed my balls are right now? Right? Fathering so many kids in the Texas heat. Got to spread my, my God seed around and quick. I know this is a hard pill to swallow. And you might think, why can't, why can't I help create future elders? Well, because God, God works in mysterious ways, my friend. And right now, a lot of that mystery is, is centered around my cock and balls. That's Book of Koresh, 2714. Well, the engine of Koresh's ascendancy was his talent for uh, proselytizing the entire enterprise, dependent on a steady flow of new members into Waco, following, followers who would turn over their income, often their savings and, and assets over to the cult. Step 20, give me all your shit. This crucial cult leader step. Jim Jones and Marshall Applewhite also understood the importance of this step, right? Colts need money, and the leader can't be working down at Target. Can't be working as a cashier at Best Buy, right? That isn't God's will. He's got to be banging everyone back at the compound. 77-acre property had been paid for by the Branch Davidians during the previous 35 years. Operating and capital expenses were provided not only from the sizable contributions of members, but also from the Colt's businesses. The Colt ran an auto repair shop and also had a gun shop and went to a lot of gun shows. They made decent money in the thriving trade in, uh, of trading guns and ammunition, uh, bought from mail order firms. They would buy, you know, these and then sell them at local gun stores. Oh, I'm sorry. They would they would buy them uh, from local gun stores and mail order firms, and then they would resell them for a profit at these uh, trade fairs, gun trade fairs throughout Texas, And because that is definitely God's will. God wants his prophets to sell guns. God was super into guns. Uh, <laughs> they didn't just sell guns. Among the products that uh, they marketed these fairs were souvenir plaques uh, made out of hand grenade casings mounted on wood. Guess those plaques are worth some coin now, man. Couldn't find these for sale online, but on on eBay, on eBay, I did find some David Koresh business cards from the early '90s when you're trying to break into that music scene. Uh, he was trying it in California. Uh, his his business cards say Messiah Productions. They they offer up both vocal and guitar work. Tried tried pulling a Charles Manson, man. Uh, the cards, by the way, only forty nine ninety five mint condition. If you're really into some Koresh souvenirs. While his members brought in money, Koresh traveled frequently in the southwestern and western U.S., also made trips abroad to Britain and Australia seeking new converts, often on the fringes of established Adventist uh, communities and colleges. With his dimples, long curly hair, boyish granny imparted an innocent vulnerability. Former disciples and family members described his deep Texas drawl and folksy way of making his listeners feel that he was genuinely concerned about their spiritual well-being. Koresh also developed an almost uh, uncanny ability uh, to identify Prospective followers and use his easygoing rock and roll manner and encyclopedic knowledge of the scriptures to lure prospects into the Waco commune. Uh, Koresh also studied uh, his market and he knew it well. Christian fundamentalists, almost always Seventh Day Adventists, and people whose lives seem to be spinning out of control with the loss of jobs, personal relationships, a sense of meaning, and their religious beliefs. His initial contact would, you know, usually begin with an innocuous conversation about rock music, scriptures, maybe a, a you know just go grab a beer, you know, exchange telephone numbers. Uh, sometimes he would join an Adventist Bible study session and immediately draw attention to himself by his unorthodox interpretation of scriptures. Then he would capitalize on his high profile by contacting parishioners who seemed open to his radical preaching. Invariably, former cult members said a prospect would, would be dropped quickly if, if he or she too forcefully challenged Koresh's interpretation of the scriptures or seemed too independent-minded. Man, he, he knew exactly what he was doing, right? No leader's welcome. Right, just sheep, just sheep looking for a new shepherd. Followers wanted. No one else need apply. Guessing he also didn't pick any new converts who had wives. He didn't want to fuck either. Right? You got to be careful there. Oh, happy to have you joining the uh, John. Happy to have you joining the family. God is pleased. Glory to God. Can't wait to have you uh, see us in Texas. I'd love to see a picture of your wife. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, oh, huh. Oh, that's that's her there, right right there with with the mustache, the the lady here. Oh, hmm. Oh gosh, I thought she was like a male powerlifter or something when, I, when you first handed it to me. Are you, are you sure that's your wife? The one with the the brown chiclet teeth and the real dirty fingernails? The one with two cigarettes in her mouth at the same time? Uh, the one with uh, with an obviously uh, obviously leaking nipple, uh, leaking nipple milk uh, through through her Tasmanian Devil sweatshirt? You know, hold hold on, hold on, John. God is talking to me right now. Oh no, this is bad. God says there's no more room in Waco, John. I'm so I'm so sorry. He said that heaven just filled up. Best of luck, John. I'm going I'm to awkwardly walk away now and never return your calls. Uh, the other branch of Indians uh, were crucial also to Koresh's success, getting new members, because they, they reinforced the recruits' belief that he or she, uh, you know, uh, was indeed in the presence of a prophet, or as Koresh's doctrine became increasingly egocentric towards the end, uh, a, a messiah. Step 21, get others to believe that you are the messiah. This is the last step in becoming a cult leader. Future steps are all about remaining cult leader. Now you've gone full cult leader. Once you become messiah, you are essentially God. Now, uh, you know messiah, God, tomato, tomato. And how did he get people to believe all this? Well, you know he'd been easing them into it for years. You know, I mean it makes sense like how he got new recruits. You know, to make it with this kind of groupthink thing. He had all these other people reinforcing that. Yep, that guy's the messiah. But but the other people, he's been easing them into that, you know, message for years. You know, when, and I think once you get dudes to allow uh, you to bang their wives and you've convinced them to to, to stop banging their wives, right? Their the wives only belong to you. I don't think uh, going Messiah after that is, is a big leap. I think they want to believe that you're the Messiah at that point. They want to believe what they've done. The horrible decision they've made is worth it. You know, some guys fucking your daughter and your wife. I, I, you know, you, you want to believe he's, he's God. Uh Yeah. Yeah, another former member recalled a marathon Bible study sessions he attended in Waco in 89, where cult members, including himself, sat spellbound hour after hour, listening to Koresh's rambling doomsday interpretations of the scriptures, and they would say, it's not it's not just that he was enthralling, it's that everyone else was enthralled, and that made you feel that he must be special, that his message was divine, you know, this former member said. Koresh's uh, manipulative skills were particularly evident when he recruited entire families often by enlisting one member and then progressively building on that success. That's a boss cult leader move right there, stringing a whole family inside the gates. Samuel Henry, a building contractor from Manchester, England, who lost his wife and their five children in the Waco fire, uh, said he watched helplessly over a period of three years while one by one, his children and finally his wife left home to join Koresh in Waco. All were Seventh-day Adventists, and the boyfriend of his daughter, Diana, was studying to be an Adventist minister. It was during Koresh's 1988 trip to England, Henry said that the boyfriend, John McBean, heard Koresh speak and invited Diana to come and meet this great man of God. Man, wife and five kids. He must have been tempted to visit the compound and kill that dude. I mean, I mean, wouldn't you wouldn't you be? If some religious nut took my whole family, I gotta be honest, I would at least seriously consider murdering them. Right? What do you got to lose at that point? All right, okay, sure, I'll spend the rest of my life in prison. You already fucking took my life from me. He took my whole family. I'm going to fucking put you in the ground. 1991, Koresh started to unravel, or I guess uh, more appropriately, he started to further unravel. Uh, he started sleeping until the middle of the day while his followers did all the work, keeping the compound running. Then at night when the members fell exhausted into bed, he'd, he'd race around through the single-sex dormitories ringing a loud bell. That's fun. Summoning everyone to a marathon Bible study session in which he would issue rambling and sometimes incoherent Bible interpretations. Uh, that, that's not good. That's not good for team morale they stayed with him he was real real convinced that the end was coming fast he, he, had, he had been reading the signs i feel like i'm totally and i'm totally speculating here that a lot of these guys made made the shift uh or make this shift from from con man to true religious zealot at some point and i feel like he's starting to do this now he's starting to really truly believe his own shit like maybe early on he was doing it partly because he thought he was receiving messages from god but but mostly for an ego trip you know girls and power all that sex but, th- but then he clearly starts to believe his own hype starts thinking that you know he really is truly uh bringing about the second coming of christ Starts talking constantly about the end of the world, first in general terms, later in specifics. He's, he's convinced that the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, had become suspicious uh, of his weapons purchases and that they were going to, you know, come attack him. And, uh, you know, they're going to infiltrate the compound. The family's cult members had, had warned authorities in the U.S. and Australia that the group was preparing for a confrontation with law enforcement, was premier- prepared excuse me, to commit mass suicide. Uh, and there's a new miniseries about David Koresh, by the way, called Waco on the Paramount Channel. I think, I think I mentioned that. I can't remember if I mentioned that in the Instagram live I did before this taping or this, this, this recording. Paramount is formerly known as Spike, and, it, and it's an entertaining show. Watch the first three episodes this past week. Features some of my favorite actors: Michael Shannon, John Leguizamo, uh, Andrea Riseborough, Paul Sparks, Taylor Kitsch plays Koresh, and he's fantastic as well. But it, it, it annoys me that they make Koresh out to to be like a victim, like you know, you know. Yes, they acknowledge he's a perv who sleeps with victims' wives, but they, uh, I don't feel feel like they really touch on how young they were and they really don't touch on the militia angle very much at all. Uh, they act like ATF had no reason for kicking off the battle that you're going to learn about in just a few minutes. They make the Branch Davidians uh, out to almost be these all-American hippie types who just, you know, they have, they have a few armed members for security, you know, but uh, that's all. No, 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 they were super militant. They were, they were preparing for some kind of misguided confrontation before the ATF raid. Uh, the Branch Davidians did start to get investigated by the ATF because a UPS driver delivered a box of grenades to David Koresh and the box broke open. He saw what was inside. Uh, I feel like that's a good reason to investigate someone. If one of my neighbors starts getting boxes of grenades delivered to their home, please investigate the shit out of them. And because I live in northern Idaho, one of my neighbors probably is getting boxes of grenades delivered. So somebody look into it. I feel safe now. Uh, the UPS driver called the sheriff's office, uh, who then notified the ATF. Uh, and the ATF had already been looking at him. They'd already heard reports of automatic gunfire from some of Koresh's militia drills. And now they're getting seriously concerned. They decide to investigate. In June of 1992, the ATF launches a formal investigation into Koresh's compound called Operation Trojan Horse. They were concerned about both the illegal manufacturing of firearms going on there and also allegations that child abuse that was being conducted by David Koresh. And knowing what we know now, I I would say they have a right to be concerned on both fronts. However, while the uh, ATF did have good reason to investigate the Waco compound, the planning of Operation Trojan Horse wasn't solid. Should have been called Operation Idiot. Uh, Operation, this is going to be messy. Uh, Maybe Operation, we should have rethought this. Operation, we should have thought harder uh, or hired smarter people to plan the operation. Total 77 agents would be involved in the initial raid on the compound. The plan was for one team to secure the arms room and Koresh's bedroom, another team to secure the second floor where all the women and children were, a third team to secure the first floor where all the men were, and a fourth team to set up a perimeter so that people working on the construction site, I guess uh, nearby, uh, should not get to the compound. They were building some more stuff over there. They did not want the cult members to be able to get to their weapons because they knew a major gun battle would ensue. Also possible that cult members would have better weapons than they had. And uh, and this part of the operation, I get. This part of the operation as a possibility, I get. But I I, I wish, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit. I wish that you know they would have thought about just picking Koresh off individually when he came into town. Maybe grabbing some of the members, you know, when they came into town on an errand instead of like infiltrating the compound itself while crash is in it anyway the undercover part of the operation involves the atf setting up across the street from the compound and that's where they really fucked up uh they put four 40 year old atf officers 40-ish year old they were all exactly 40 in a little shack on the neighboring property to pretend <laughs> that they were students that was their cover just you know just four 40-ish year old students living in a fucking shack in the middle of nowhere that's what students do they didn't even give them furniture uh, and they also had them very, you know, move uh, obvious surveillance equipment into the shack in cases, <laughs> super suspicious, you know? Just, uh, Oh, uh, who, who are we? Uh, we're just some students just going to Baylor university and you know, you know, rent's expensive in Waco. So we got a good deal on the shack here. And the four of us thought, you know, we don't need to live on Greek row. We're just, we're a little late for the party there. So why not just live in an unfurnished shack and constantly stare at you guys with our binoculars? Uh, Robert Rodriguez, one of the forty uh, one of the forty year old ATF officers, and he was the one planted inside the cult to join the Branch Davidians. He's played by Legazamo in that show. And at the very beginning of the investigation, he gets in, and he's supposed to find out you know what weapons they had, where they had them. He wasn't able to locate uh, any of that information. He did find out that the Branch Davidians were aware of the ATF and knew a raid was coming. He did realize you know he he knows that they're armed. He just can't find the, the weapons. He also finds out that uh, David thinks the the raid is part of God's plan part of how the fifth seal of the apocalypse is going to be opened, you know, and he and his followers are ready to go to war with the ATF and some kind of holy battle. And he, and he knows that David is not interested in being captured alive. February 27th, 1993, the Waco Tribune Herald begins publishing The Sinful Messiah. A series of articles by Mark England and Darlene McCormick alleged that Koresh had physically abused children in the compound, had committed statutory rape by taking multiple underage brides, which we know is true. Uh, Koresh also said, uh, he he was also said to advocate polygamy for himself and declared himself married to several female residents of the small community. Uh, according to the paper, Koresh declared he was entitled to at least 140 wives. 140! my God! He was entitled to claim any of the females in the group as his, that he'd father at least a dozen children, and that some of these mothers, uh, became brides as young as 12 or 13. So if they're becoming moms as 12, they're getting fucked at 11. This, ah, he's a complete pedophile. Uh, Koresh did not care... Uh, For this article or the rest of the articles, mostly because, you know, they were true and they were horrible. Uh, And this first article called on local authorities to do something. So so the ATF have been planning this raid. Operation Trojan Horse, they push it up now to uh, the following day. Originally, it was planned for March 1st. And the actual going into the compound will be called Showtime, that particular part of the operation. February 28th, 1993, day of the ATF raid, Rodriguez... That, that undercover agent, he's in the compound early that afternoon and learns that Koresh knows the ATF is coming that day. A local news crew had learned of an impending search warrant, and the large ATF operation uh, was headed to the compound. But then they got lost, and they had to ask a postman for directions. And the postman was a member of the Branch Davidians, and he immediately ran and warned Koresh. Right? So David sat Robert, Robert Rodriguez down, told him he knew he was a plant from the ATF. He knew the ATF was coming. He shook Robert's hand, told him good luck, and then he prepared for the next phase of God's plan, armed confrontation. This is where the ATF really did mess up, because then Robert goes back to the ATF force and tells him, don't come today. Do not go in. David knows you're coming. They're getting ready right now. Things are going to be ugly for sure. They're preparing for a showdown. But the op- but the leaders of Operation Dumpshit don't listen, right? They, they planned their raid. They wanted some news coverage. You know, they wanted to look like the big heroes. They wanted to do it that day, and they just fuck it. They just go in. And they underestimated the firepower and readiness of Koresh and his followers, and it would cost them the lives of some of their men. And it cost the lives of a lot of Branch Davidians. Rodriguez would later testify about how the operation was mishandled, and numerous ATF agents would be either let go or suspended because of this. 9.45 a.m., all right? Now we're, we're just going to be going down to the timeline through February 28th, through that Sunday for a while. 9.45 a.m., 76 ATF agents arrive on the compound, get out of their vehicles. Gunfire begins almost immediately. No one knows who fires the first shot. ATF agents stated they heard shots coming from within the compound. Brandon Davidian survivors claim the first shots came from ATF agents. Uh, it's going to be he-said-she-said-forever. Suggested reason uh, for the shootings may have been an accidental discharge of a weapon, possibly by an ATF agent, causing the ATF to respond uh, with fire from automatic weapons. Other reports claim that the first shots uh, were fired by the ATF dog team who had been sent in to kill these big-ass guard dogs that were on, uh, in the branch Davidian Kennel. Right after the bullets start flying, David tells his followers, I don't want anybody to do anything stupid. I'm going to go out and talk to him. I'm going to go out and talk to him. Just, just don't take any action in your own hands. Let me handle it. Uh, he opened the front door, yells out, Hey, wait a minute, there's women and children in here. Uh, one of the agents sees him and starts running straight at him, saying police, search warrants. And this is when David messed up. He could have just stopped right there. He could have got down on his hands and knees, put his hands behind he could have put, put his hands behind his head. Excuse me. Got down on his knees and just given himself up to police. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And this is going to have huge ramifications. He, he backs up and he goes back in and he shuts the door. As he's trying to shut the door, these bullets start coming in and he gets shot in the in the wrist. Uh the wrist is what I read in one article, but I didn't see a wound on his wrist later for, in a video from the compound in the, in the in the TV show. It looks like he's gut shot. I don't know if anybody actually truly ever knows for sure where exactly he got shot. Wrist. he he gets shot. Doesn't really matter for the story because he he, he lives through the shooting. And I love that he he's willing to tell the agents that there are women and children inside, but he's not willing to turn himself in to definitely save their lives. 9.48 a.m., three minutes after the shooting starts, Branch Davidian and Waco attorney Wayne Martin calls emergency services, calls 911, pleads for them to stop shooting. The the residents, you know, they ask for a ceasefire. Audio tapes uh, record him saying... Here they come again. That's them shooting. That's not us. The first ATF casualty is an agent who made it to the west side of the building where he was wounded. Agents quickly took cover, fired at the buildings. While the helicopters uh, began uh, their diversion, they sweep in low over the complex, 350 feet away from the building. Building The Branch Davidians fire on the helicopters and actually hit them. Uh, they don't injure the crew, but they do get the helicopters to uh, stop their mission. And, uh, and land. On the east side of the compound, agents haul out two ladders, set them against the side of the building. Agents then climb onto the roof uh, with the objective of securing the roof to reach Koresh's room and the arm storage. On the west slope of the roof, three agents reach Koresh's window, and they're crouching beside it when they come under heavy fire. One agent's killed, another wounded. The third agent scampers over the peak of the roof, joins other agents attempting to enter the arm's room. Uh, the window smashed. A flashbang stun grenade is thrown in. Three agents enter the arm's room. Uh, When another tries to follow him, a hail of bullets penetrates the wall and wounds him. He's able to reach a ladder and slide to safety. An agent fires with his shotgun at Branch Davidians, who are shooting at him until he's hit in the head and killed. Inside, I mean, this is a serious-ass gun battle. Inside the arms room, agents kill a Branch Davidian gunman, discover a cache of weapons. But before they can retrieve them, they come under heavy fire. Two are wounded, and they they have to retreat. As they escape, a third agent uh, lays down covering fire, killing a Branch Davidian. As as he made his escape, he's hit in the head on a wooden support beam, you know, falls off the roof but survives. An agent outside provides him with covering fire. He's shot by a Branch Davidian. He's killed instantly. Dozens of a- uh, ATF agents take cover, many behind Branch Davidian vehicles, exchange fire with the Branch Davidians. The number of ATF wound, uh, wounded uh, increases. An agent is killed by gunfire from the compound. as agents were firing at Branch Davidians perched on the top of the water tower. exchange of fire continues. 45 minutes into the rain, the gun uh, into the raid, uh, the gunfire begins to slow down because the agents begin to run low on ammunition. That's how serious this siege is. This huge ATF operation, fucking what over 70 agents comes in, and and, and they're lighting this place up for 45 minutes, and then they're like, all right, we're almost out of bullets. We got we got we got to reassess. Well, the shooting continues, you know, sporadically for another two hours. Eventually, the local sheriff, the branch divisions, had called uh, when the shooting uh, started. Uh, is able to get through to the ATF and tell them, you know, these guys want a ceasefire. 10.46 a.m., David calls 911. He talks to a local sheriff, uh, you know, but how do you have a reasonable conversation with someone using theological justification for illegal actions? You do not. Uh, 11.30, a ceasefire is declared. Four ATF agents are killed during the raid. Another 16 are wounded. Five Branch Davidians are killed. The FBI is brought in to take over negotiations with Koresh. 4 p.m., David is able to call into a Texas radio station, KRLD in Dallas, starts to tell listeners that the U.S. government is attacking women and children, that civil rights are being violated, and, and the United States shouldn't be going to war with their own citizens. And you know what? The U.S. government shouldn't go to war against the citizens, but its citizens shouldn't stockpile illegal automatic firearms and start fucking kids. I mean, that's the thing that bothers me when, when people go off on the government about the Waco siege. It's not like he started a knitting club on the compound. It's not like he was, you know, smoking a little weed and they found out about it, and, you know, or, or found out that he let a couple 17-year-olds have, have a few brewskis and listen to a little bit of the nooch. No, he's running a cult militia, and he's a pedophile. Nearly six hours after the 1130 a.m. fire, cult member Michael Schroeder shot dead by ATF agents, who allegedly fired a pistol at agents as he attempted to re-enter the compound. Uh, the news media initially reported Schroeder was shot breaking out of Mount Carmel. His wife claimed that he was merely returning from work, had not participated in the day's earlier altercation. Schroeder gets shot once in the eye, once in the heart, five times in the back. Man, not messing around with these guys. 5 p.m., same day, ATF spokesperson uh, Ted Royster says gunfire has continued sporadically throughout the afternoon. So the ceasefire, not holding that well. 7.30 p.m., Koresh is interviewed by CNN. Uh, The FBI then instructs CNN not to conduct further interviews. Uh, They don't want people feeling sympathy for this guy. 8.15 p.m., sporadic gunfire has ceased. A 51-day standoff has begun. 51 days. Damn near two months. Two months, almost, uh, of this compound being surrounded by numerous armed federal agents. You know, unreal. 10 p.m., four children are released from the compound to authorities. Monday. March 1st, in the early morning, acting Attorney General Stuart Kirsten uh, gives an update to President Clinton, who implicitly endorses a negotiated solution and asks to be advised if there is any change in strategy. Negotiations continue, and over the course of the day, 10 children are sent out of the compound. At least twice, Koresh says suicide is not being contemplated. That's a pretty good day. That's probably the best day, uh, March 1st, in uh, in the siege. Tuesday, March 2nd, in the early morning, uh, Koresh makes a one-hour audio tape of his religious teachings, adding a preamble promising to surrender under the national broadcast of the tape. At 1.30 p.m., the tape is broadcast nationally over the Christian Broadcasting Network on the condition that he will surrender. At 5.58 p.m., word is relayed to negotiations from Koresh that God has spoken to him and told him to wait. How convenient. Oh, yeah, no, I was going to come out, but then God just said, nope, nope, uh uh-uh, you got to stay in, you got to stay in, we got to do some more negotiating. Uh, so Attorney General states that the strategy is now to talk them out no matter how long it takes. Two elderly members of the compound surrendered to authorities on March 2nd as well. March 3rd, Wednesday, FBI offers to have murder charges dropped against the two elderly women, Davidians who had left the compound the day before. Uh, speaking with negotiators, Koresh accounts for his failure to surrender as, as agreed by saying he's dealing now with his father, as in the Lord, and not with your bureaucratic system of government. Uh-huh. How convenient again again. Uh He talks a whole bunch about the seven SEALs, Really focused on the seven seal talk. I like to pretend to make this whole story extra crazy that uh that in his mind now he's actually talking about actual like seals, like the animals. Right? Like he's gone that crazy. <laughs> uh David, ha- how will we even know if we've seen the seven seals? You'll see him playing as day doing their little seal crawl across the Texas prairie, tossing a ball back and forth with their noses, making seal noises. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't, is that how seals talk? I don't know. I know how they look. I've never done a seal bark before, but you'll notice that. How can you not notice that? We're just we're just gonna wait in the compound until we see seals coming across the prairie. Uh, March fifth, Friday. Nine year old Heather Heather Jones. She leaves the compound wearing a note pinned to her jacket uh, from her mom that says, "Once the children are out, the adults will die." Kresh and his top aide Steve Schneider deny this. They, didn't, they deny they're contemplating suicide, but clearly there's been talk of it inside the compound. The FBI seeks the advice of experts and Davidians on the likelihood of mass suicide. Uh, they receive inconsistent information. The FBI concludes that the Davidians have a one-year supply of food. So that sucks for the siege, um, for them, including abundant military rations, You know, MREs. Koresh continues preaching and threatening violence. Uh, negotiations continue with Koresh over the weekend to no end. Uh, FBI agents acknowledge frustration in getting him to agree to surrender. There's concern that a mass suicide is a real possibility. Monday, March 8th, Kresh is healing well from his gunshot wound. Milk is delivered uh, to the kids on the camp compound. Videotape of children in the compound is sent out by Davidians. They actually also put little bugs on the milk cart so they could hear what was going on in there. Uh, Negotiator's log shows that, you know, when the tape is reviewed, there is concern that that if the tape is released to the media, Kresh is going to gain too much sympathy because the kids appear to be happy and healthy at this point. Uh, Tuesday, March 9th, 2.15 a.m., electricity to the compound is cut off. And then Koresh says he will not talk further, he will not negotiate further until power is restored, and they do restore it. Then Friday, March 12th, after several days of fruitless negotiations, more fruitless negotiations, power is then cut off inside the compound. Uh, And this is an attempt to undermine Koresh's command, add some instability, hopefully get a little mutiny going in there. Sunday, March 14th, the FBI uses bright lights now to illuminate the compound at night. You know, add sleep deprivation to the stress of those living inside. Try to force a surrender. Monday, March 15th, FBI modifies their negotiation strategy. They they refuse to listen to anyone. And and, and I, or no, excuse, excuse me, they refuse to listen to uh, any more. And I quote, Bible babble. I, I love this. I love they have officially, as a, as a government organization, they can't take any more <laughs> seven, seven seals mumbo jumbo. Look, we're going to keep the lines of communication open, David. We want this to work, but we will not hesitate. To cut off all communications, if you don't just shut the fuck up about the SEALs, okay? We have day after day of your goddamn SEAL talk. Please, I wake myself up in the middle of the night just screaming, samus SEALs! I'm sick of it. Uh, Thursday, March 18th, the FBI began speaking to all those inside the compound via a loudspeaker, urging them to surrender, telling those inside they will be treated fairly. If they do surrender, no one does surrender. Friday, March 19th, Koresh says he's willing and ready to come out and face the music and then he doesn't. I guess God, you know, changes his mind again. Two other Davidians do come out of the compound. Uh, Saturday, March 20th, another member leaves the compound. A few more members uh, exit the following day. Also on the following day, FBI begins blasting music via the loudspeakers into the compound, including, uh, you know, hours and hours of Tibetan chants. Uh, David says, no more people are going to come out until the music stops. So clearly they're, they're getting under his skin. Monday, March 22nd, the FBI makes a new offer to Koresh, allowing him to communicate while in jail after he's captured. You know, uh, among other things, provided all Davidians begin leaving the compound as of 10 a.m. on March 23rd, He doesn't take the deal. Another Davidian leaves the compound the following day. Uh, Wednesday, March 24th, the FBI calls Koresh a liar and a coward during a press conference. I have to agree with that assessment. Monday, March 29th, for nearly two hours, David Koresh and famed Texas criminal defense attorney Dick DeGuerin meet at the door of the compound. They speak two more times the following day. Uh, DeGuerin still convinced Koresh would have surrendered had the FBI been more patient. I just I just read an interview with him about it from a few weeks ago. Tuesday, April 1st, DeGuerin meets with Koresh again, this time inside the compound. Tells Koresh that the FBI have agreed to drop all charges. Convinces Koresh to walk outside the compound. The second David Koresh, uh, Koresh crosses the threshold of the front door, FBI sniper shoots him twice in the leg, and then DeGuerin yells, April Fool's, motherfucker! <laughs> oh, oh, man, I just got you good. Oh, man, I got you good, April Fool's. Uh, No. Uh, Deguerin tells the FBI that the Davidians will surrender sometime on or before April 10th. For the next week, there's just a lot of sitting and waiting. Wednesday, April 7th, Koresh refuses to confirm an exit date with negotiators. So he is just infuriating to deal with. Uh, Friday, April 9th, David sends a message to the FBI saying that the heavens are calling you to judgment. Two experts analyze the letters. Four others sent over the next few days and conclude he's possibly psychotic and has no intention of leaving voluntarily. The FBI begins to finalize a plan to use tear gas now to flush everyone out of the compound. After several days of more attempts at fruitless negotiations, uh, Koresh uh, goes, you know, gets back onto more Bible babble and refuses to exit the compound until God tells him to do so. Wednesday, April 14th, Koresh sends a message to the FBI that he will not surrender until he has a written manuscript explaining the seven seals. Oh my gosh, do you hear what I'm saying? He's not going to surrender until, you know, he has just completely, perfectly explained. Seven seals, so everybody knows where he's coming from. And and I bet a collective just, oh, for fuck's sake, is just uttered by the entirety of law enforcement working this case. Following day, the FBI concluded that Koresh has enough water on the compound to last for a significant period of time. So, you know, at this point, it's like, how much longer are they going to wait? This guy has, you know, food and water to last probably months and months and months. You know, uh, enough's enough. Sunday, April 18th, President Clinton signs off on the tear gas plan. Armored vehicles clear uh, Koresh's uh, Chevy Camaro, other vehicles away from the front door of the compound although the FBI warns the Davidians to stay out of the tower. They hold children up to the windows and in one window hold a sign saying flames await. Okay, now Monday, April 19th. Uh, we're going to go uh, kind of hour by hour on this one, too. This is this is the big day. This is uh, the last day. 5.59 a.m., nego- negotiators telephone the Davidians, notifying them of an imminent tear gas assault. A message is read over the loudspeaker advising the Davidians they are under arrest and should, they should come out. 6.02 a.m., Two FBI combat engineering vehicles, or CEVs, begin inserting tear gas into the compound through spray nozzles attached to a boom. 6:04 a.m. Davidian starts shooting. FBI begins deploying Bradley vehicles to insert ferret rounds, which are barricade-busting containers of tear gas, through the windows. 6:31 a.m. All right, the entire the entire building is being gassed. 7:30 a.m. CEV breaches the front side of the building on the first floor as it injects gas. 7:58. Gas is inserted in the second floor of the back right corner of the building. FBI calls for more gas from outside Waco. Nine twenty, forty-eight 48 more ferret rounds arrive from Houston. 9.30. uh, With the supply of ferret rounds dwindling, one CEV is having mechanical troubles. High winds are blowing the gas away. Another CEV begins enlarging the opening in the middle front of the building from which the Davidians could escape. A third CEV with a boom uh, but lacking a gas delivery system breaches the rear side of the building to create openings near the gymnasium. 11.30 a.m., the CEV without a gas delivery system breaches the backside of the compound, concentrating on the back right corner near the warehouse gymnasium. 11.40 a.m., the last ferret rounds are delivered. 11.45, wall on the rear right side of the building collapses. 12.07, Davidians start simultaneous fires at three or more different locations within the compound. An observer reports seeing a male starting a fire in front of the building. 12:12 12:12 p.m. Nego- negotiators call on Koresh to lead the Davidians out to safety. Nine Davidians flee the compound, are arrested. 12:25 p.m. The FBI hears systematic gunfire coming from inside the compound, leaving several agents uh, or giving several agents the impression that the Davidians are either killing themselves or killing each other. 12:41. Firefighting efforts begin. Uh, agents enter tunnels to search for survivors, especially children. None are found. It is all over now. In all. 76 Branch Davidians died. Nine survived the fire on April 19th. An independent investigation by two experts from the University of Maryland's Department of Fire Protection and Engineering conclude the compound uh, residents had sufficient time to escape the fire if they had chosen so, if they had so desired. Autops- autopsy records also indicate that at least 20 Branch Davidians were shot, including five children under the age of 14. Three-year-old Dalen Gent was stabbed in the chest. The medical examiner who performed the autopsies believes these deaths were mercy killings by Branch Davidians trapped in the fire with no escape. David Koresh's burned corpse is identified by dental records. An autopsy reveals he died by a bullet to the head. It's inconclusive as to whether or not the wound was self-inflicted. And the destruction of the compound and the death of its cult leader, David Koresh, takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. So that's what happened at Waco. Uh, If you do a little research yourself, uh, you're going to find a lot of criticism regarding the government's handling of the situation. Many felt it was a display of abuse and power. And, and, And as I mentioned earlier, ATF agents did lose their jobs over how it was handled. You know, there's all these photos of like tanks outside a house with kids in the windows. And if you just look at that photo and don't understand the context, yeah, it looks real bad. Uh, you know, and, and basically, you know, the main mistake, the the ATF was continuing to go in and go in aggressively after un- undercover intelligence revealed that the Dividians were prepared and ready for an armed confrontation. You know, they, they should have waited. You know, they could have waited until Koresh was off grounds and, and questioned him then, possibly escorted him into the compound to reduce the risk of confrontation. It, it was a poorly planned confrontation as far as timing goes, especially coming on the heels of the Ruby Ridge standoff in Idaho the year before. You know, which was another example of the government coming in, guns blazing against U.S. citizens on private property. You know, in, in the Ruby Ridge standoff, a teenager and unarmed woman were killed. However, you know, Randy Weaver, the man on the other side of the Ruby Ridge confrontation, uh, also had a warrant out for his arrest for failure to appear at his own court date on gun charges. You know, so again, he, he wasn't some innocent dude, you know, fucking whittling dwarf figurines out of wood, or some, <laughs> some random shit on his property, you know, bothering no one. He was associated with Aryan Nations militia. You know, uh, did the ATF mess up with Waco? Yeah. Did the FBI, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe. But, you know, no one's perfect. But the biggest fuck up of all, the real guilty party in all of this, is clearly David Koresh. He doesn't molest kids. He doesn't train a militia and arm them with illegal weapons. None of this happens. Period. End of story. He could have gave himself up. It it ends there. I, I get sick of assholes doing something horribly illegal. Then blaming cops for not you know uh doing their job properly and then the public coming down on law enforcement right oh they're shooting at women and kids yeah they're being fucking shot at wake up you know pay attention to the fucking story with your crazy comments what are they supposed to just just you know just take being shot at for as as, you know what indefinitely until they run out of bullets or something like come on have some common sense you know uh you know you don't want cops or the government fucking with you well then follow the law you know, I have plenty of problems with the government, but, but you know, uh, but both times I've had to go to court, one for DUI, one for city theft and malicious mischief when I was <laughs> fresh out of college doing some jackass stuff. Uh, I pled guilty immediately because I was guilty, and I accepted the punishment immediately without question. Why? Because I did it, you know? Uh, but that's just my opinion. That's just my opinion about uh, how people interact with law enforcement. That's my opinion on Waco. There are a lot of other opinions. Uh, let's look at some of those. Let's look at some of those other opinions with some idiots of the Internet. A lot of interesting commentary on the web about Waco. So much. User Jerry Culp posted a video called David Koresh Tells the Truth About Waco on July 19, 2009. And in this five-minute long video, you know, Koresh doesn't go on and on about the seven seals like he does in a lot of other videos. And he makes a lot of intelligent points about how the government shouldn't have the right to engage in military-type assaults on its own citizens. And he also brings up seemingly valid points about how the government could have just detained him when he was in Waco running errands. You know, how they didn't need to, uh, you know, uh, assault the whole compound in a big show of force. And he comes across pretty sympathetic here if you don't watch other videos, if you don't understand anything else about the story, if you don't have all the details. User uh, Caseman1 sums up how I feel about the whole situation pretty well, typing, I don't have much faith in the system, but I don't have much faith in self-proclaimed incarnates of Christ either. Exactly, Caseman1. Exactly. Too much media focus in the years since on what the government did wrong and their reaction to Waco. Not enough focus, in my opinion, in what the Branch Davidians did wrong to bring that shit on themselves. Uh, This video really has brought a lot of religious nut uh, job wackadoodles out of the woodwork. Uh, Looney Tunes like Richard Quiones, who posts, This was an attack on Christianity. The government attacked a religious group. Since when is it against the law to bear arms, to stockpile weapons? It's not. But yet our government is is stocking up and, and militarizing the police force. Giving them hum- Hummer vehicles, tax, what the fuck, seems to me we're at war with the government. It's time to rise up. Okay, listen, Richard, can I call, can I call you Dick? I'm going to call you Dick. You seem like a dick. Listen, Dick, uh, this wasn't an attack on Christianity. It was an investigation into a very well-armed and trained militia who were stockpiling illegal weapons and preparing for apocalyptic war. You don't have the right, as, as a U.S. citizen, to stockpile automatic illegal weapons. Right? They had good reason to show up armed and in numbers if they were going to show up and, and do it in that way. Oh, and, and they were fucking kids. There is that. Their leader was fucking kids. Right? Uh, and they really did have so many weapons, man. They had 60 M16 machine guns, 60 AK-47 assault rifles, numerous other legal weapons, huge cash weapons. You know, they would buy uh, legal uh, semi-automatic, we- semi-automatic weapons at gun shows, you know, and from gun dealers, and, uh, and then modify them into, into going fully auto, which even in Texas, even during the 90s, was illegal and should be. Uh, you want to play with bigger guns? Well, sign up for the armed services then. And, and why is our government militarizing the police there, Dick? Well, so they can stop U.S. citizens like Koresh from attacking other U.S. citizens. What if the Waco siege didn't happen? Does anybody ever think about that? What if they don't? What if it doesn't happen? How long before, you know, would it have taken before those guys went on the offensive somewhere? They were training, right? You don't train not to attack. You don't train uh, to become an army not to go and, and attack eventually. You know, eventually that army was going to fight. Who, who were they going to fight? You know, were they going to attack City Hall? Were they going to go Oklahoma City, you know, bomb an ATF building, something like that? And by the way, I was thinking about this. If if you replace Christianity with Islam in this story, nothing else. Change out nothing else. Just switch Islam out for Christianity. Very different reaction in the comment section from the public in general uh, because of underlying racism and misunderstanding surrounding Islam. If Quresh would have been Muslim and would have had brown skin instead of white, If you'd looked more like Muhammad than David, oh man, people aren't going to go easy on that at all. Suddenly he's a child fucking satanic terrorist who needs to be blown off the face of the earth and people are cheering on behalf of the ATF, right? They're they're begging him just to blow up the compound because suddenly it's a terror cell. User Liger the Claw tries throwing some sanity into the comment section, posting, I feel sorry for the sheep that fell for his honest and straightforward attitude that bought their loyalty. Speaking about Koresh. To the point of giving up their wives, allowing the sexual abuse and inbreeding inbreeding to occur from one man leading his disciples, what happened at Waco was a tragedy, but everyone there chose their fate by following a zealot who backed his practice with weapons and fueled the attack with his insanity. Exactly, Liger. And I appreciate the Napoleon Dynamite reference in your username. But then user SBBU replies with more crazy. Oh, so because they followed a religious nut, the government was justified in murdering them and their children? You're a sheep. No. SBBU, following a religious nut doesn't make murder justifiable, you ass clown. However, if you don't think following some pedophile who is also building an army equipped with illegal weapons is putting you in harm's way, you are fucking super dumb. You're ignorant. You're the sheep here, SBBU, blindly following whatever nonsense conspiracy the internet throws your way. Uh, Some random racism makes its way into the post. Of course it does. User Lost Time reposts the Zionist occupied government shot first. Here we go again with the Jews, man. Always with the Jews in the comment section. Always have to blame them. Always thinking that some they're some puppet masters. So many idiots still believe in that old Russian anti-Zionist propaganda. You know, Any narrative involving a cover-up or suppression of Christian freedom, and the Jews are behind it. Is that ever going to go away? I doubt it. Uh, user Trigo Martinez posts, most agents, being Latino, had a lot to do with this disaster. What an especially odd post coming from someone with the last name of Martinez. Ease up on the self-hate there, Trigo. Ease up. Jeremiah Bruner goes Captain Obvious, social justice warrior, uh, posting nothing he did have the FBI or any of them the right to burn kids alive, period. Good post, Jeremiah. Way to get that that out there, buddy. You're right. Uh, He didn't do anything that justified the FBI burning kids alive. Part of the reason the FBI did not burn any kids alive, the Branch Davidians burned themselves alive because they were lunatics. They were absolutely crazy. They chose to follow a dude who convinced them to either uh, uh, be fucked by a polygamist who claimed to be a prophet of God and key figure in the second coming of Christ, or let their wives and young daughters be fucked by that guy. The youngest girl given to David to be his wife was 11, 11 years old. David, or I should say, Vern, was in his 30s. Dude was a pedophile, again, not some victim of the government. And then Clayton Hightower posts some more utter misinformed nonsense, uh, saying the media gave false accusations of what was going on. They don't want freedom or religious of religion or free speech when people were trying to get out they were mowed down by the government even children uh not true clayton not true one of my best friends from college who i won't name because i didn't ask him permission to use a story in this episode and i don't want to bother him or bring up a, a past tragic events well two of his cousins were raised by his parents you know along with him you know and, and his uh brother raised as siblings kids i met several times years ago kids who grew up to be amazing adults one of them actually uh, owns a small business less than a mile from where i am right now here in the CDA, in the Suck Dungeon. And these kids lived in Waco. And they were some of the kids released to federal agents at the beginning of the siege. They walked out, and they didn't get mowed down. Their mom died in the gun battle with the ATF agents. She was shot, you know, day one. Their dad died in the fire on the last day. And uh, and they did tell their story. They told the story of a religious lunatic who took child brides. One of these kids, just a few years away from becoming a child bride herself, they told stories of Koresh routinely discussing sex openly, with even the youngest girls in Bible lessons, little tiny kids, grooming them as pedophiles do. So fuck David Koresh. I feel sorry for his followers. Glad he died. Only wish he could have had a more painful death. Uh, maybe I wish he, could have, he lived long to be raped in prison, or even hardened felons don't care for child molesters. He was not a revolutionary. He was not a martyr. He was not some big proponent of you know, free speech and freedom of religion. He was trash. Mark Harrison posts even more stupidity. My take on the whole deal, as it unfolded back then, was that they were not hurting anyone. If folks want to believe, whatever they want it's their own business, not mine. If folks want, you know, to own weapons of any kind, as long as they're not using them to commit crime, then they should be able to protect themselves, however they choose. Well, Mark, uh, let me just say this. Your take is shit. Your take is complete dumb shit. Look, I'm libertarian more than I'm Democrat or Republican. I want the government involved in my life as little as possible. However, I do want them involved in public safety. And letting maniacs own weapons of any kind, as long as they're not using them to commit crimes, is absurd. What are you talking about? It's not safe for the rest of us. Really? Just, you know, fuck it. Let them have some tanks. Give them some assault helicopters. Give them as much plastic explosive as they can get their hands on. Let them sp- stock up on napalm and some, lo- and some light missiles. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> uh, the worst that could happen is they could, you know, kill tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. You know, that's what? Numb nuts? You know? God, so many people are dumb. It's terrifying. It's sad. And they were hurting people, Mark Harrison. They were hurting kids by letting them marry a grown-ass man. How do you not see that? Are you a pedophile? It feels like these comment sections are full of people who want to fuck kids themselves. And that's why they defend David, right? Uh, Maybe not. I don't know. At the very least, the comment sections uh, under these videos are loaded with idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. The Waco Siege, man, it divided America. Some felt that the Branch Davidians were dangerous wackos, you know, who brought harm upon themselves. Others felt they should have been protected by the Constitution, to practice their new faith, you know, as they as they should choose. Ah, on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety-five, Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh claimed to be avenging the Davidians when he killed one hundred and sixty-eight people in his attack on the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. Uh, we'll suck on Tim at some point down the road, I'm sure. The events at Waco spurred both criminal prosecution and civil litigation. On August 3rd, 1993, a federal grand jury returned a superseding 10-count indictment against 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians. Grand jury charged, among other things, that the Branch Davidians had conspired to, aided, and abetted in the murder of federal officers, unlawfully possessed, and used various firearms. The government dismissed the charges against one of the 12 of the Branch Davidians, uh, pursuant to a plea bargain. After a jury trial lasting nearly two months, the jury acquitted four of the Branch Davidians on all charges. Additionally, the jury acquitted all of the Branch Davidians on the murder-related charges, but convicted five of them on lesser charges, including aiding and abetting the voluntary manslaughter of federal agents. Uh, eight Branch Davidians were convicted on firearms charges. Uh, some were sentenced to 40 years in prison. All Branch Davidians uh, have, uh, have been released now from prison as of July 2007. Uh, a lot of shadiness does appear to have happened, uh, you know, on behalf of the government in the raid. Some believe, despite uh, some investigation findings... That the government, for example, started the Waco fire. Some say tear gas canisters uh, they used were flammable. Others said they used pyrotechnic devices during the fire and then covered up that usage. Uh, independent filmmaker Michael McNulty came, ac- uh, came across some evidence that appeared damaging to the government. He found a shell casing from a certain type of tear gas round that could start a fire, a device the Justice Department had denied using for more than six years. Uh, Congress was misled on this. There is no question about it," said Assistant U.S. Attorney Bill Johnson, the top Justice Department official in Waco. Uh, you know, uh, he he worried that you know people in the Justice Department were hiding the truth. However, lying doesn't mean they started the fire. It could have been a "oh shit, this is going to make us look bad. No one needs to know" kind of situation. Others still believe the government fired the first shots. Maybe they did. Uh, A lot of government agents involved have expressed regret. I I do think it's safe to say the government fucked up in its handling of Waco. To what degree, we'll never know. But again, again, no one fucked up more than David Koresh. Right? He is the reason all of this happened. And that is all I have to say on this uh, topic today. Almost. There are still top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, David Koresh had roughly 20 wives inside his Waco compound, definitely as young as 12. Some say one was only 11 when he started having a sexual relationship with her. Former member David Buns says that when Koresh took up with one girl, he was, quote, having problems penetrating her because she was so young and little. He told her to start using tampons, the kind that you insert in to make herself larger. Still think he's a victim of government harassment? Still think he's just a proponent of freedom? Number two, while the government admitted it could have handled Waco in a better manner, a federal judge dismissed a wrongful death civil lawsuit brought by Branch Davidians in 2000, clearing the government of any wrongdoing in the deaths of about 80 members of the religious sect during the disastrous 1993 standoff at the group's compound near Waco, Texas. Number three, a Texas Ranger testified that about 300 assault rifles and pistols were found in the charred remains of the Branch Davidian compound hours after the structure burned to the ground in '93. Roughly 60 of those were fully automatic M-16s. You want to form a militia, go for it, but you don't get to form an actual army unless you want a showdown with the U.S. government. And you will lose that showdown, just like Koresh did. Number four, when he was 25, David was sleeping with both a 14-year-old and a 68-year-old. Creepy and, in 1980s Texas, legal as long as you were married. And you could still get married in Texas at the age of 14 with parental parental consent until just a few months ago. Until the law finally changed. Gross. And number five, new info. According to a report on the siege put together by the U.S. Justice Department, the Branch Davidian compound standoff with the ATF and the FBI was, quote, unprecedented in the annals of American law enforcement. Never before had so many heavily armed and totally committed individuals barricaded themselves into a fortified compound in a direct challenge. To lawful federal warrants. Time suck. Top five takeaways. David Koresh sucked. Glad that dude is not amongst us anymore. Not a fan. Now come out and see me. Shows have been too much fun. They really have been. Man, the live shows have been fucking the best lately. Like little cult get-togethers of our own, man. But ones where I don't, uh, I don't pretend to be God, and I don't try to fuck any of your kids. So you know, my shows are fun. Good cult meetings. So so come out and see some. Minneapolis, Brea, Cleveland coming up in March. Charlotte, Atlanta, Birmingham, and Huntsville. Uh, Nashville, Houston, Dallas, Salt Lake City. And San Francisco coming up in April. Forgot about the Salt Lake City to put that on the calendar. So sorry again about that. More info up at dancummins.tv. Check out the dates. Snatch up some tickets. Wear your Time Suck shirts. Or don't. Just show the hell up. Have a great time. Uh, Got a new product in the Time Suck store. It's a weird one. For the first time ever, you can sniff the suck. You can smell it. Turns out the suck smells like either vanilla or strawberry. Who knew? Nimrod. That's who. Why not smell the suck while listening to it on your commute with these uh, sweet master sucker automobile air fresheners for 5 bucks in the store or 4 bucks for you space lizards with your merch discount made from 317% panda wet spot juice. Not only do these air fresheners smell delicious, they also ward off evil forces, the forces of Lucifina, guaranteed or none of your money back. So throw it in your shopping cart today. Start snorting some suck. Danger Brain wanted to do some air freshers, and when I saw their awesome design, man, I just couldn't say no. I know it's weird, but they're so cool. Coolest air freshers I've ever seen. And and they're in the TimeSuck store now. Thanks to Social Media Master, Sydney Shives, Events Coordinator, an amazing patron saint of the Secret Space Lizards at Secret Space Lizards, Social Media Accounts, Harmony Velocamp, Show Notes Editor extraordinaire Jesse Dobner, the entire TimeSuck team, including interns Maddie Teeter and Deanna Marino. Huge thanks to the Lily Twins, Sarah and Reba. Knocking it out of the park, OG Bojangles. Research team members, uh, they did a, a lot of the research on this episode. Thanks for all the reviews spreading the suck. It means so much. You know, we're moving towards three thousand, and it's amazing. Every review helps every time. You guys write the most wonderful things. I read the reviews in the in the way that um, iTunes does their analytics. More reviews moves you up the charge, which allows more people to find you, and it means so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Thanks to all the suckers who suggested this topic. Kevin Barnett, Julius, Justin Nance, Crosby Whitney, Noah Saldana, Joseph Lundberg, Hannah Carpenter, Caitlin Young, Jared Yvonne, Ryan Wolf, Anthony Engelman, Scott Stevens, so many others I know I'm missing. Uh, Thanks again for suggesting this topic. Next Monday on Time Suck, we suck on the unsolved murders of Tupac and Biggie. Hell yes. Going hip-hop on the suck. Going into my youth. Who killed Tupac Shakur? Who killed Biggie Smalls? Are there are, are there any legitimate suspects? Why do they both still have massive name recognition years after their deaths? Still selling records. man. Shit. Tupac released four platinum-selling records of original music after he died. Tupac was only 25 when he was shot four times in Las Vegas. Notorious B.I.G. was only 24 when he got shot four times, too. Both were quickly becoming the biggest names in hip-hop. What happened? Let's suck on it, all right, this uh, this next Monday. And now it is time for Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. First update comes in from a sweet sucker named Jacob. Jacob writes, Hey, Dan, listen to the IRA episode and wanted to tell you I disagree with the update on suicide at the end of the episode. My sister killed herself, and I personally believe that it is a completely selfish act. I just want to point out that it's okay to think that as well, and it's okay to have compassion for those people, but people who have already lost someone to suicide should not be judged by others for thinking badly of that person sorry for rambling. I just want to show that everyone grieves differently. Thanks and have a good one. Thank you, Jacob. Man, absolutely, man. You have every right to feel how you feel on that. And I'm so sorry that happened with your sister, man. Uh, My heart goes out to you. And and absolutely, and I I thank you for for taking the time to send that message. Yes, we do all have the right to to deal with uh, our grief in these situations in our own ways. And and now uh, a little bit of love from a fellow Idaho sucker, man. This is from Alden Juarez. Alden says, hi, I'm a new sucker, maybe too new, as I'm not even confident that's what I should call myself. But I love your podcast. Started with your Slenderman episode, was recommended on Reddit. Well, that's cool. I didn't even know. Uh, and I'm hooked. Now I'm working my way through all the episodes from the beginning. I'm a true crime enthusiast and lover of the creepy and weird. Hell, yes. Ah, Lucifina is strong in you and really enjoy uh, how much you research. While I love other true crime comedy-themed podcasts, often they only hit the tip of the iceberg. Uh, usually I end up on a deep dive with other shows. But I truly feel satisfied with your episodes. As another Idahoan from a small town, Homedale, Homedale girl, but now live in Boise. I feel proud to have you out there talking about them lizard aliens, murderers, and all those other time sucking topics. Hope to come to a live show one day. I'll stop with the cringy gushing. Just wanted to let you know you're doing great and you can get back to sucking. Alden. Oh, I love oh, thank you. Thank you. That's very sweet of you. It's very sweet of you. And uh yes, love, love my Idahoans. Love being in Idaho. And i uh, so glad you enjoyed the show. And that's cool that there's some shit out on Reddit. So thanks, guys, for putting stuff in other places and getting the word out. Okay, one more. I know it's a long episode today. Avery Agostino, Uh just to show how great time suckers are. Uh, Avery says, what's up, fucker? Just wanted to wish you luck at the Ferndale show recording. I bought tickets for the events, but Lucifina decided to curse me with the motherfucking flu. Damn, Lucifina. Anyways, good luck uh, with the night, and I hope to see you back in Michigan for more shows in 2018. Sincerely, Sincerely, excuse me. Lucifina's bitch, Avery. Man, how cool is that, man? This guy's sick with the flu. He can't go to the show that he bought tickets for, and he still takes the time to wish me good luck. And and that is the kind of guy I find that basically all of you time suckers are. Man, I love you guys. I mean, Meeting at the show, you, you're just truly the fucking best. I'm so lucky to have you guys, you know, uh, want to, you know, interact with, with my life and, and let me do what I love and be so supportive, and, and have fun, and it really is starting to feel like a big old Time Suck family. Our own cults, but I'm not going to go Messiah. I'm not going to go Prophet, I promise. I just I just want to research more weird shit and write more comedy. So thank you guys so much, and thanks for the updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for another fun Suck Time Suckers. Have a great week. See some of you this Saturday uh, here at the little get-together in uh, CDA. Please don't fuck any kids or buy or make illegal automatic weapons. And, you know, above all, uh, just keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential.